My name is Pepita Elena McKee. I am CEO and founder of Impact Resolutions, and I'm a sociologist and anthropologist by trade. So the work that really drives me or I feel gives me purpose is is working with people and um, being able to uh, share their stories in, in a way that is co-collaborated and informs things that might affect them. So that's mainly the work that I do now. Amazing. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you do? Um, I think if you are trying to understand this topic, I think it's a little bit intimidating for people. Um, I think that it plays an important role, mm. and perhaps it's a role that people don't get to see that often because uh, it is important to have uh, s- someone kind of as an intermediary being able to build bridges along both sides. And I think that uh, highlighting your work is so valuable because we can all perhaps learn from building bridges between two sides. And I think as we might disagree more with people, not able to see their opinion or their viewpoints, it's important to try and understand. It's trying to build those connections. So could you tell us perhaps about the work that you do? Yeah, thank you. Um, As a sociologist and anthropologist, that was later in my career. I think very early, it was really important for me to live with communities and to live with people and really understand their day-to-day as a, way, as a way to understand how policies are implemented in practice. So I have a real discomfort reading something and, and signing off on something without having a first-hand knowledge or a real clear picture around how information was collected, who it was collected from, and ensuring that it's not only elected leadership or those who are hold sort of authoritative positions, but grandma and grandpa, the youth, the elders, the aunties and uncles, how were they included? And were they provided a safe space to share their stories in a way that they felt comfortable? Right. Yeah. Could you give us like an example of when when you come in? What does it sort of look like? Um, you have perhaps a big industry trying to work with a community. What does it sort of look like uh, for you to be brought into a circumstance? I've been pretty lucky in terms of where I'm brought in. Um, in my earlier in my career, I did. Uh, I worked mostly internationally and had been given this real unique opportunity to live with communities who were involuntarily resettled by a large dam. And this is seven years after construction. Uh, The proponent or the client still required monitoring and evaluation to ensure the agreements at time of construction or resettlement were still being followed through. And this is a context where, um, you know, going back, I had developed a real She's my mentor now, and, you know, she really loved the approach that I take to live with communities as a way to understand how policies are implemented in practice and had convinced her client that you should hire myself Um, because they were having a real problem understanding, well, on paper, everything looked great. But as an example of my approach or my method in this context was to live with them. And these were two communities and Close to 7,000 people were relocated involuntarily. And these two communities um, in particular had um, really protested against the construction of the dam. And as they were going ahead anyway, had decided to um, agree to um, 
negotiations, a memorandum of understanding, and a resettlement action plan. So this is seven years after. And, you know, they were relocated. Um, and unbeknownst to me, there were still a lot of struggles. And that came out with community members shooting at proponents like myself. So I, I didn't know that at the time. I had been given the opportunity to live with them. And, you know, at the, I was early in my career and it was really important for me to, to live with them, but also to earn their trust. So it was, you know, I was given that opportunity to develop uh, a meaningful relationship by demonstrating that I'm here not just to parachute in. And I think that's a really com important component. They, you know, people need to see there's some investment. I'm not just coming in and leaving, which often is the case. You're going in for a meeting and, and then they leave. And here my um, offer or my proposal, and this is something they've never done before, was to live with them. So my first year, and I ended up there close to six years, was only for a couple months. But it was important in that two months to have permission to come back. So, you know, that experience really gave me an insight into what's important, especially when you're dealing with large-scale involuntary resettlement or large-scale impacts due to um, development, a development of in infrastructure. So it gave me the in insight that I'm on the right path and I was able to learn really quickly um, where things had gone sideways. Interesting. So these corporations go, were working with uh, an indigenous or a native population to the area, and maybe we're not getting what we need, maybe we're not getting the agreements that we were hoping for, and then they, they call you or they call an organization to come in and sort of be an intermediary between the two. Is this a new um, approach? Yeah, I think, and this was a special case. Um, that experience, usually I'm hired when they're in the environmental assessment application process and internationally, um, especially when involuntary resettlement is involved, uh, there's great effort to really understand and scope a cross-section of the community. So it's at least the effort is there. And that's after doing it wrong for many, many years. They've established these international guidelines, whether they're operating under World Bank and voluntary resettlement guidelines or um, international finance cor corporation performance standards. There are requirements that are involved with bilateral loaning. Right. And sort of applications for funding. And so that international experience gave me the breadth of understanding of what pre-construction, pre-sort of agreements, what, what was involved in terms of um, moving towards consent, you know, ensuring or the bank being happy with the way the the proponent may have collected that information, understood impacts for either avoiding or mitigating or compensating for any negative consequences. Wow. So yeah. when they contact you, are you agreeing to, you moved there for two months at first. What is that agreement like? Like what is the expectations of you? Is it just to go kind of live a day in the life and understand or are you gathering? And what, what does that sort of experience look like or that agreement, at least with on the side of the corporation? 
situation. Well, it was it was interesting. I think a really unique circumstance because Dr. Helen Cruz, who who had essentially recruited me on a project she was already working on, you know, and this was before I'd completed my BA. So I, I was still in school at this time and, you know, was really thinking about what my next steps might be and had discovered with some of my early work in, in BC, the importance of living with these communities. And a lot of the information was being able to identify you had spoken to this person who you thought was your broker. But in reality, that person actually doesn't live in the communities. So really just trying to pivot and work with the Indigenous Peoples Organization that was created who were supposed to represent community members and strengthen that relationship, at least that communication between the proponent, the damn proponent people and and the Indigenous Peoples Organization who were representative of the wider community. And it was through that, developing that, I guess, those relationships, living with these communities really day to day. Like, And these are areas which, sadly, you would expect their living situations to be better than maybe before they were resettled with no running water, no electricity. And in one community that was relocated to the top of a mountain, potentially in five to 10 years with no source of, of water because of where they were. So there was there were some things that were coming ahead that were outside of the control of, of the dam, but for the community themselves were, you know, of great concern. Right. And what is it like to build relationships with the community? Um, when you're heading in, do you have uh, a mindset, a approach on who you'd like to connect with first um, to build perhaps stronger relationships, perhaps knowing that um, in a certain community, elders are really important. So building connections with them first will perhaps pay dividends and build, being able to build relationships with other people. How do you go about approaching that? In this case, it was already predetermined for me and the community were really open and enthusiastic about welcoming me, welcoming me in. In other circumstances, when it's in, involved in an environmental assessment application or impact assessment, it really is about under, like each community will have different protocols and ensuring that I'm respecting local context. So it would be, well, who, who should I talk to? And, and usually that if it's here in Canada, um, it'd be a call to the band office, understanding, you know, do you have a protocol officer? And then working with that protocol officer, understanding, well, this is sort of the, the plans. Um, and then working through talking to the right people. Um, when I was working in central BC in the Wet'suwet'en territory, I, I was coming on, um, with the proponent already supposedly having established relationships. And, you know, in a, in a similar way, it's about developing that relationship with those that we were delegated to or who were delegated to working with me. And then, you know, in, in my way, it's about giving as much as you're taking. So being able to demonstrate that I'm I'm really here to, to listen and to share and, and certainly – whether that's here in Canada or working internationally, um, you know, you're, you're tested. You know, how, <laughs> how authentic are you really? 
right? And and I think that takes some time. In Canada, I was lucky because I, when I was thrown into projects or put in placed onto project, there wasn't much expectation for me to do much. Internationally, though, it's it, my work has been different. I've I've been really blessed to work with some really great proponents who who want to do the best possible effort in order to collect the right information. So it it really depends on the client, and it depends on the political will or maybe the pressure um, for uh, a financial investment decision on whether that project might go ahead. In that first case that I was talking about, that's a project that's already been built, and they were looking for ongoing funding. So, you know, I'd love to say these people want to do the right thing or these companies want to do the right thing, but really there's some uh, political will or sort of tension behind it that they have to do that kind of work. So I've been, again, really blessed to kind of sit in that context where people need my skills. Um, and that is, you know, as a, as a social scientist, to be able to collect a lot of qualitative information a very short period of time and then quantify it into themes or concepts that, you know, lawyers and accountants and, you know, business developers will understand. And that, and that really is the role that, you know, I didn't, I didn't think, you know, as a young person never thought that's what I want to be, but that's, that's what I've been able to really flourish in. Yeah, like it's like a, you're like a community translator for the needs and the desires and the, the aspirations of that community into what lawyers, accountants, and financial workers and these people are able, the language they speak, the, the numbers that they're looking at in terms of what do they need, how much funding do we allocate to X, Y, and Z. Um, I'm just interested to know because it seems like you're – perhaps one of the only people trying to balance that scale. We hear about um, inequities when corporations are dealing with um, vulnerable communities that don't have, like, uh, even thinking of my community, they don't have, uh, like, an expert financial person to look at potential agreements. Uh, and then uh, some people might argue, well, any opportunity would be fantastic for them because they don't have any right now. That's right. But once they take on that agreement, then they're not open to any other agreements and and so perhaps the next proponent would have been more kind or generous or, or more supportive. And so when you're in a business situation, you're kind of going, this is what we're willing to give up. Um, this is what we'll give them if they ask for it. But if they don't ask for it, we're not going to give anything. And so there is a difference in relationship because uh, often the, the communities have no idea uh, what what they should be asking for, what questions they should ask. And if they're not in that position, they won't know to ask for those things. And you're kind of sent in to kind of evaluate what should they be asking for. So could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think I think that was certainly much the case 2006, 2007. And in, in, in BC, I, I can speak to, and, and I'm really thinking around, you know, the regulatory environment on what a proponent or an industry or government is supposed to do. Internationally, that conversation, I love the way you frame it. You're right. You know, this is the needs of an industry or a government who needs information to pass X, Y, and Z. But this might be the first time a community has even had to think about these things. And so how do you contend with that. And, you know, I find it's really trying to push the timeline on the needs of 
you know, that industry proponent or government proponent with the reality of communities. They, you know, there's there's a whole life that they're living that is not following their timeline. And, and that's kind of the pressure between the two. And again, if, if you have a, re- a strong regulatory environment requiring you to do meaningful engagement, then, you know, for the proponent, they're going to build that into their operational plans and their budgets. And that makes it easier for someone like me to, you know, being able to build a business case in terms of why we need to spend some time in communities versus a regulatory environment that really looks to validate what the community is saying to you quite late in the stages of an environmental application process. Well, if the industry is not required to do that, then they've done just enough. And that that's where you see the tensions and I think changes in the regulatory environment in Canada, which is really exciting. What seems to be, you know, I was really surprised working internationally and coming back here to Canada, how much I took for granted of what what it took to do an impact assessment. And, you know, I'll just give you one example. And I was so impressed. I I was working for um, a potential hydro project that was going to involuntarily relocate 13 communities in the Prairie River Delta in a very remote region of Papua New Guinea. And the CEO had just, you know, there was a requirement, but he went above and beyond that to develop, you know, in addition to the work that the impact assessment team were, you know, attempting to do. He developed a third-party auditor made up of Oxfam and other NGOs to audit the work that we were doing. But he would go ahead in advance of our of our team who spent months there to collect this information on in terms of what their lives were like now to ensure that all the right people were there. So it it really depends on, you know, the regulatory environment, um, you know, the sort of the hindsight of a CEO to understand that doing all this really meaningful engagement up front will sort of develop the right mechanisms for successful construction and operations. It's it's rare, but um, I, I feel very lucky to have worked with a few people like that. That's really interesting that you say that because it's how I felt about being a native court worker was just that there were these amazing people doing such good work, yeah. but we don't put them on the front page of a newspaper. No. They don't really get the credit um, of the impact that they're trying to have or the everyday, like there were some crown counsel that mm. would call me and say, we have a client in cells. We need you to go see them. Like we want you to help them try and get them connected with treatment. And nobody's talking about that. And then we talk about systemic racism or we talk about the evils of the criminal justice system and we don't talk about the good work. And I think the thing that I experienced was there was such a sense of perhaps discouragement of doing good work because no matter how hard you try, that's not going to make the news. It's going to be that one case where somebody did do something wrong that interests everybody. And it's not those good, kind leaders who aren't looking for the fame or recognition for it. Yeah, it's it's troubling because, you know, in my career as it's evolved, I know sort of where my heart sits 
And again, it was just pure luck that I'm working with, you know, CEOs like I did with in Papua New Guinea or in, in other projects in, in Western Australia. And even in this dam project who, who knew, sorry, in the Philippines, who, who understood that they weren't getting the right information and were willing to take a leap to do something different with me. And, you know, and then how, you know, work, you know, it's, it's a whole, group of people it's a community of people doing these things and and i think people don't generally want to do bad things but they aren't given the space to do good things and so it's pressure for them just to produce on a timeline that is so unreasonable because in ultimately it wasn't scoped well so that i feel like that's kind of been my charge is to ensure that whatever the project, however, however big or small, the upfront work to scope it well and be able to properly, you know, place a budget, which within each line item, if you will, will really make a difference for people to do either good work or bad work. And or, you know, does it sort of nurture that culture of competition, which is, you know, and, and bullying and harassment, because, you know, if scoped well, people won't feel like they're, um, you know, they that they'll have the time and that they're all the work and the work that they're doing has some meaning in terms of the greater goal of whatever that is. So you're like saying that if you're in Vancouver during rush hour traffic, you're going to make worse decisions in terms of your ability to, to you have to get somewhere by 5 p.m. Exactly. and it's 4.48 yeah. and you're rushing yeah. through. You're, I'm guilty of that. Done it. Yeah. I, I've made, you know, <laughs> made bad decisions because I felt rushed. Yeah. And if you remove or create space not to feel like you're going to make a bad decision or put yourself in a, a high-risk situation. And I think that's for most parts of our lives. It's really to humanize it. Yeah. And I think some companies do that really well, and they're learning on that it's more than the engineering aspects of a project. There are non-engineering or non-technical aspects of a project that are equally important that could create a sort of the, the life cycle in a really healthy way of that project. That's interesting. I've never really thought about that. So would that be something if you could wave a magic wand and change one aspect of this industry and, and the relationships, it would be to uh, like flush out and make sure that you have a, a better sense of what the process is going to be and have better expectations so that those everyday employees who are looking to go up the corporate ladder and be like put in as management and then yeah. climb that, that they're not incentivized to be bad actors because then they have the time to go, okay, like let's make sure that everything makes sense here and we're happy. Are you having the right people in the right places to the, do the right work? You're not just building an organization based on nothing or just assumptions. If it's evidence-based, you're going to have a better idea of the having the right people in the room to do the right work. I, I think that's one aspect. I don't think that's going to solve everything because I think people in, you know, have a lot of, you know, in terms of how we work with each other, there's, we need to practice that more in terms of creating a, a more human place to work. But I think we can remove a lot of the tensions that create or sort of foster negative behavior. And then I think there's another component where, you know, and I, I feel really grateful to be involved in the Indigenous Center for Cumulative Effects, which is trying, it's a national organization, a nonprofit that understanding cumulative effects and all that happens in our community 
you know, we're trying to develop the conversation that those conversations about development aren't triggered by development, that we're giving communities or we hope that we're giving communities an opportunity to develop their own understanding of what is valuable, you know, from a sort of a whole centered approach. And then if a community or developer comes, they already have that information. They've been working on it. They've already been practicing that conversation and know where their boundaries are and who who's sort of set up to, to speak with the right people, who needs to be consulted with. Because that's it. And, and I can say really easily when I first came back to Canada, the understanding of who should we talk to, especially in a, uh, a hereditary elected system in most communities, was not only confusing for proponents, but also for community members. They, and that's sort of the work that we're trying to do at that national level is give, you know, that opportunity, we hope, or at least that's what we started with, in like, well, regardless of what's happening out there, what they need, what do you need? And let's start that conversation with the elders, with the youth, because that that's really the people who should be driving these conversations or those those members who live in those communities. That's so interesting. I'm writing a paper on First Nations economic development oh, okay. and yeah. community consultation was not something I expected mm. to be the cornerstone of my paper, right. but developing community plans, economic plans. Um, it sounds like that's what you're talking about as well is having an understanding of what is community mean what do, yeah. where do we want to see ourselves because yeah. one of the problems you can have is you bring in a great development but then none of the community members saw them doing the jobs that the organization was offering and saying like oh we're going to give you pipeline jobs and yeah. then the community's like i don't want that job that's right that that might not be for them or being able to say yes or no to opportunities because it came from them first but not to forget the religious and spiritual component of that and and that's one thing, you know, in, of a practitioner where, you know, you see development go really sideways is not taking really, the, again, that human heart-centered approach that it's more than the economics that makes up our well-being or our whole selves. It's more than, you know, housing. It, it's sort of the our, our spiritual time, you know, that as well. And I, I think that's what's really exciting about a cumulative effects approach. It It sort of helps why I think for me to understand potentially who are the right people to talk to, right? Who are the real decision makers? Because we know it's not always those who are elected, you know, or even those who are, who claim to be hereditary or who are hereditary, right? There's, there's other people in those communities that are, are influential and, and for other reasons outside of economic ones. Interesting. So you're the spiritual and perhaps the wellness side is likely the religious elements are going to be the hardest for a corporation yeah. to quantify, to understand. And when uh, I had Keith Carlson on um, and Sonny McKelsey, and they um, are very interested in indigenous locations here in, in the Fraser Valley and place names. Yes. One of yes. the comments um, they've made is that we've destroyed some sacred spots mm. for indigenous people here um, by putting in pipelines, getting rid of um, burial grounds, uh, just kind of running them over. And then their comment was kind of like, well, you wouldn't tear down the Eiffel Tower to put a pipeline through it. Absolutely. And so yeah. could you share? Yeah, no, thank you. And, and it's exciting because, again, I, I just assume this was done everywhere. And in an involuntary settlement context, it's about understanding your sense of place for those reasons that you just identified. 
um, grave graveyard sites, spiritual sites, sacred sites. It's all. It's all. It's really about understanding a sense of place and understanding for that community in a voluntary resettlement context how far that sense of place goes. Because if you're relocating a whole home, a whole community, then that needs to be identified. And in order to either um, avoid those spaces or be able to properly compensate it. So it, it the method or the approach is, it's really in the process versus the outcome. You're creating that safe space for those members to feel safe to share with you. And then you're validating the information that you're interpreting to make sure that, well, did I get that right? But at the same time, impressing upon the people I'm taking this information because it could mean something and it could mean something really great. It could mean something really horrible, but you, you know, whatever that choice is, I want it, you know, so it's really a, a sharing of information in terms of what engagement and consultation looks like. So for me, it's like understanding a sense of place, which in impact assessment work, I think it's more and more acceptable because it gives you that greater sense outside of just, you know, the, the cost of living those socioeconomic aspects. Do you feel like that's the hardest part to portray? Because even for me, I get like, oh, there's the the woo-woo. Um, like, I struggle with that in I, my I've own been life. told, I've been told, well, you know, we, we all need a socialist in the room. <laughs> I never thought of myself as one. But that, that's how maybe a client would see me because I, I feel that's where I really shine. And I didn't really discover that about myself, that I'm really good at taking those really complicated concepts and being able to quantify them really quickly. And that's where I went back to school to do graduate work was really to to sort of hone those skills further. Uh, so after working internationally, I decided to pursue graduate work, which, you know, again, I was going in with purpose. I was like, okay, I, I know, you know, I want to make socioeconomic impact assessments or impact as assessments easy for people. That was kind of my mission. And I, I really, I was very fortunate to have, um, you know, been trained through a medical sociological anthropological lens, which takes emergent information and then, and then focus on, with a focus on um, quantifying that information. So whether it's on a sort of a small scale or or through a large sort of national data set, you know, that was all what I did with my graduate work in, in that regard. So for me, it's pretty easy. <laughs> and, and again, it, but it really goes down to creating that space, ensuring you have the right people in the room that people in the community have endorsed to be with you. So there's a whole approach before, you know, in terms of uh, consultation and engagement, this idea around moving towards consent, you know, it does take a little bit of time. But once you get there, it's like, zoom, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you have that trust, you have that sort of um, permission from you know, the the leadership, which, you know, in my mind is a cross-section of people in that community, uh, to work with them, to develop that information that you need to understand what we would call a value component, to understand not only the relationship with between people and environment or people with things or, or a sense of place, but 
all those things that might be required for a later regulatory application. Right. One thing I feel like that often gets left out of the conversation is that these developments in many circumstances are beneficial to the community um, as long as things are done obviously equitably, but that for many First Nations communities here in BC or Canada, we're facing severe amounts of poverty. We have a lack of development based on where we've been located, uh, the size of the reserves, all of these things have played a role in us not being able to develop well economically. Mm -hmm. And so this is a a potential space for improvements, for communities to uh, gain capacity and to feel confident uh, in their own communities and to be able to make sure that everybody's taken care of. So there is um, benefits. There's an opportunity. There absolutely is. But I I think where developers have made the mistake is around the timelines and the pressure that they need to sort of push forward, you know, their timelines versus the communities, I think there's a real opportunity when there's a political will, and I've seen that, where negotiated well, you know, you see a lot of benefits coming back into those communities that can be used for multiple purposes. And and that's the thing, you're collecting, you know, you would hope, and, and I think that's where a developer does really well, you're collecting information for your project, but it's also the community's information that they can use for multiple purposes. So I think there are opportunities and benefits that could be generated. And I've seen that when there's political will to do so because of the client or the proponent who who needs something, right? I, I think for those others, you know, it hasn't been done well because it, it's it's really rushed. You know, there's no... Uh, validation of is that the right person that you're actually talking to and you know what however big or small that project might be the benefits are really funneling into one person and that's a problem because that's what people remember in terms of development and I think people wouldn't mind opportunities coming back to that community but I believe and I think it's becoming more commonplace they should decide what those benefits are and they should be included in those conversations. Interesting. So for Canada, we're looking at UNDRIP, uh, which is the United Nations um, Declaration of, of the, the Rights, Rights of Indigenous, Indigenous Peoples People. Act. It's a long, it's a long word. And then, and then BC's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act as well, so DRIPA, yeah. um, which BC just came out with an action plan for implementation. And then, in, so there which is really exciting. I think when I first started this work in in the 90s, you know, even creating awareness that what, there were land claim issues was a big issue. <laughs> um, and, you know, even the idea around the legacy, the horrible legacy of residential schools was not discussed. And so you see this, I think, in BC, a really unique situation looking at that a majority of British Columbia hasn't been officially treated yet. There's a political will for the province to do this because, you know, you look through uh, sort of the, the Supreme Court cases that are on the side of rights and title, it would be in the province's best interest to really implement some of the, you know, identified action items in um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous 
Women and Girls Report, Calls to Justice. So, and then DRIPA just really formalizing that, well, in theory, uh, to be mainstream throughout sort of all, I guess, civil, civil approaches, civil projects and so do you have optimism? Because I've heard it on both sides. I've heard uh, comments from professors go, we've had commissions done all since the 1900s. And we've had new commissions that say totally. basically the same thing. Yeah. And uh, today it's got a new name. It's got a flashy title. Um, people are keeping it in mind, but that it hasn't really done that much or that there's no teeth in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission requiring it to be implemented by X date or something along those lines. So do you feel like we're moving in the right direction? I know that in the last, I think it was the last election, uh, a big question was, uh, are we going to bring in UNDRIP into our Canadian legislation? And then what does that mean for, um, I think it's consent, um, or there's there was a piece right. of it that yeah, was being I, discussed. Free and prior informed consent. Yes. And that goes back to, you know, um, you know, the Calder case, which, you know, you need to consult with, you know, Aboriginal or Indigenous peoples. It's sort of, it's all kind of built on from that, you know, considering that these efforts to negotiate, um, you know, really, you know, you know, existed in 1887 and conti and continues. So I think it's moving in the right direction. I do have a, a bit of spirit of optimism around it because as a practitioner, the more legislation that supports meaningful engagement, you know, is is the better. And I think the more and more practitioners that, you know, and I think there are who are really hungry for the legislation to support that the work that they want to do, right. whether it's in government, whether it's in industry, we, we have something now to say, well, there's a business case. It's not a nice thing. And a thing that we know is will be the right thing to do, but you're required to do it now. So whatever that looks like, I think we're moving in the right directions. And now it's just sort of regulating that space. And I think in terms of, well, what meaningful engagement, what does that look like? And that's really not determined by me. But what is determined by the legislation is that time has to be scoped in. For those activities. Interesting. Yeah. So the 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 right leaning perspective uh, that I think Andrew Shear tried to lay right. out yeah. was basically that you've got this pipeline that needs to go from A to B, and it's going to go through fifteen different Indigenous communities. And if fourteen of them are all on board and they all agree and they consent, I'm and then, done. <laughs> and then there's and then there's one. What do we do with that right. one? And so that's the question around free, prior, and informed, informed. consent. Well, and I think it goes back to okay. Sure, you have that, but then it's not only what you have, it's how you got there. Right. So I think that's where FPIC becomes, has utility. It kind of provides us a bit of a diagnostic tool to sort of say, okay, well, we know what FPIC looks like, you know, with all these other case studies across the globe. We know why FPIC exists. Well, how has it been applied here? So there will be that, I think, an analysis on more than, well, you have those 11 elected band councils who agree to the project. But it's more than that. It's more about, and I think in BC, especially with rights and title, it's for those who live on and off reserve. Interesting. Um, can you tell us, um, perhaps some of it is confidential, but would you be able to walk us through what happened with the Wet'suwet'en community? Um, just a, a, perhaps a historical layout of what went wrong, because I think that that's mm. the, 
the indigenous community that stands out the most. And as I'm working on this um, First Nations Economic Development Plan, many people believe that indigenous people are actually anti-development. Um, and I think that that's a consequence of how the Wet'suwet'en community is covered and how any all the the projects that go forward that are peaceful and there's no issues they don't get covered but when there is a disagreement that's what makes the news of indigenous people standing in the way and yeah, protesting yeah. so would you be able to uh, perhaps share what you kind of saw play out yeah i you know and i feel really grateful to continue to work in the territories and with people and, and my approach has been and you know even the work that i've done in the philippines and elsewhere internationally i still have a connection with those people so that's always been my approach. And when I first started there, um, you know, I, I had inherited a, a project where my predecessor had been trying to develop relationships for a number of years and wasn't successful. And, you know, there's no blame on on why that happened. So when I when I first, I guess, came on the scene, um, you know, I was I was still using that hat of my international hat, which is, you know, develop meaningful relationships. And I, I think, you know, I feel really grateful for coming on to a project that had the political will to want to pass an environmental assessment application process. And that was coming up in the following year. So there was an interest, or at least I had the support of the project leadership to live with those communities, develop the relationships. And only because quite quickly in, in, in a matter of months, I was able to, to develop a relationship with um, those who lived on and off reserve um, quickly enough where we had uh, a memorandum of understanding to do environmental work together. And my approach has always been, you know, this environmental um, data collection um, doesn't mean that you consent to this project. It just means that you're auditing the work that we're doing and whatever your decision, it's informed. And and again, I thank goodness for that CEO in Papua New Guinea who taught me that. Like, that's what's important here, that people understand that if this project goes ahead or if it doesn't, at least they're involved and they're included to be able to make that decision. So I felt really blessed again to have, and at the time, 10 of the 11 uh, hereditary chiefs accompany us in the field to collect environmental information and understand that sense of place. But that was a lot of me living there, me developing the relationships. And, and again, it wasn't, I love that work. It's, it's sort of like I could live with communities, you know, share stories and, but be really clear about why I'm using their information. Um, I could, I could have done that work for the rest of my life if that was, you know, if I was allowed to do that. But in that short period of time, um, yeah, it, it was, it was an intense couple of years because, you know, and we were competing with 18 other industries who were looking to operate there that included LNG and mining and forestry. So I felt really grateful to have the attention of the hereditary chiefs in the office of the Witsowitz. And, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't, uh, you know, 
it was an authentic, I felt, relationship where um, I could reach out and they could reach to me. And we, we had developed a, a relationship of trust. And I think my the, the hard work wasn't with communities. It wasn't with the Wet'suwet'en people. It wasn't with the Office of the Wet'suwet'en. It was with my client or with 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 the proposed proponent. And and again, it's because they had a an operational budget and a scope in mind and needs and a timeline that didn't match the reality of the communities. And so, and and thank goodness I had the executive leadership on the team to support me and be able to sort of fend off the needs of the larger mothership who needed things, right? But that's why we were successful in, in getting our application, environmental application, because we, I was given that space to do the work and to live there and to, you know, build a community office. And, you know, when that when we did receive environmental application approval, um, you know, I was told essentially they don't do that across the rest of the com- you know, the company, so we won't be doing that anymore. So that that's that was the context of that time and that work because again there was a political will um, and a desire to do do what I thought was meaningful engagement in collaboration with community members, but it was because there was an environmental assessment application that needed approving at one, that time. One question I have is like, we often hear about this. The Wet'suwet'en is not in Vancouver. They're not, they're not in a busy area. How do we land on you? Who, go, who's who to talk to? Yeah. yeah who do, why do we go through these communities is often what I hear that right. we could just, we could develop the pipeline to go and avoid these communities. So how do we end up having that we need to go through this community and 17 different proposals on one community that's out in, like it's not in a metropolis it's not yeah, in a busy place I, I think it's changing again you have a regulatory environment that collected years of biophysical and environmental and geotechnical data to understand what would be the best right of way through a territory that disconnected or didn't validate that information with the people who live there and who use the land until quite a bit later. And I and I think with the new regulatory environment in BC since 2018, 2019, and federally, that's changing where you wouldn't collect five years of, you know, that kind of information without really validating that with the people. That that's all sort of turned upside down. So I think, you know, those decisions on where people will build. Um, in that regulatory environment at that time weren't required to validate their plans with the people who live there. And that, you know, those decisions on who they should talk to, you know, at in that regulatory context, it was only with the elected leadership. So that's, you know, and and with my work, it was really those who lived on and off reserve. It was a, a more of a hereditary approach versus... Because um, that's the way it was trained. You you learned, you know, in, in a voluntary resettlement context, not only those who have, you know, sort of the authority, I guess, you know, in air quotes there, but also who have the informal or the hereditary governance systems. How do, are those frameworks that operate within communities? And so my natural approach would be to understand that. And so that, you know, again, that came quite late when, you know, they had already been collecting 
five to six years of environmental information and we're only kind of missing that piece in that territory. Interesting. So did you were you still working with the community? I know you still have relationships there, but when uh, I, I want to call it like a debacle with the Wet'suwet'en, like the it sounds like uh, ties were cut, issues were created, um, and then uh, it sort of started to make international headlines. Um, what what did you see play out, or wh- what was the circumstance of you watching that kind of come Unfold, about? Unfold um, with NDAs, I can't speak too much, um, too, too in too much detail. I sure. I was sitting, you know, this is probably post twenty sixteen, and and I think with Ethpic, you know, kind of going back to that. It is, you know, you're developing meaningful consultation engagement, not just for when you need it, but for a life cycle. And I'm not sure if the same method or approach was kept up. I'd say I'm not confident um, after they won environmental application approval. So that, I think, changes the dynamic and you lose those relationships when you know, the, that method or momentum isn't being kept up. And I think that's for most companies not in that particular context. But what might have amplified distrust or maybe, um, a, you know, sort of that, I would say, protest against, you know, uh, what was happening was able to flourish because of, in a sense, an abandonment, right? Because they don't, you know, that that group, while it gains international attention, um, you know, there there was a large majority who who weren't who didn't have a voice or who who weren't talking, and 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 rightly so. They, you know, whether they were agreeing to the, you know, sort of what was happening or or not agreeing to it, there was this big middle, who, you know, really have lives to live want to i'm sure take advantage of opportunities that were happening in their happening in their community and 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 were involved in so there was many i guess sides to that equation that uh, the one that got the international attention were the protesters of course um and that only escalated you know um and and very well organized it was quite an impressive campaign and and continues to be today um i think what worries me still continuing to work in that territory is around, regardless of what their opinion is, that's kind of besides the point, is it a safe space for people in that territory now? And and I would say no, it's not. You know, people aren't able to um, enjoy their territory in the way that they did pre to all these developments in the territory because of these tensions and these conflicts that haven't been addressed. Right. The one part I'd like your thoughts on, because I don't have a well-fleshed-out viewpoint, um, but it worries me when um, you have protesters coming from communities that are completely disconnected, going all the way up to a community, and then picking a side, and not they're not that, consulting. That Well, and that's it, right? It, it should be the same approach and same lens should be applied evenly equitably and and that's what it was you know we when we when i say we had the hereditary chiefs with us in in the field it was really you know eye-opening for protesters from california telling the hereditary chief of that territory to get off 
First Nations land and having that hereditary chief say, well, actually, we've given them permission to to collect environmental impl- information was quite eye-opening. And, and that's, you know, that's something that dynamic had been operating there for a while. And I can see both sides. I'd been on that side as well, but I think it goes back to we can't be blindsided. We can't have tunnel vision and there's some responsibility for those people who are coming from those communities to talk in a similar way that I did because to the grandma and grandpas and, and develop those broad relationships. So that's just as important for either side, whether you're on the right or the left, but that viewpoint needs to be discovered and explored and can't be blind sort of you know, tunnel vision, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And it seems like you're caught in, you're always in between those two worlds. Um, I just saw somebody make a post basically saying, well, why don't we, like we had the floods here in the Fraser Valley. One person just posted, well, why aren't we considering just letting the lake come back? Mm. And it's like, are you, mm. like, do you know that, like, the, like they're, what they're trying to basically argue is that this is how it was prior to uh, colonizers being here right. or Europeans yeah. being here. Right. And so wouldn't it just be great if we went back to the, right. not realizing there's an indigenous school there that's there's right. an there's indigenous a whole community. community that's evolved since that time yeah right? so it's easy to make the claim yeah. oh, why don't we just go back to the yeah. way things were 120 years ago yeah. but it's simply like that's not what the first nations community like you're just saying something that sounds like you're being anti i don't know colonization or something but yeah. it's not rooted in like a logical well, analysis you're, you're just recolonizing yeah you're sort of recolonizing a space that's not yours yeah. <laughs> and it kind of goes back to you know living with communities to understand anything yeah policies implemented in practice you know uh, truth to story that you read in the news for me I, i'm not I'm, i've never been satisfied with picking up the paper and going oh yeah that's that's the way it is and <laughs> you know i for me and I, i've done that I, I think that's what led me to the people i've interacted with who've been my mentors i pick up the phone i call these people if i, if I see a story i'm like i really want to know what's the harm in that and most times people are really excited to share their stories. And, you know, so for me, I'm always very cautious of people who, you know, have these great causes. But the thing is, have you talked to the people that you're having a cause about? Have you spent time there? And I think for anything that we do in life, that's so important and, and can be easily done. Right. There's a business case behind that, especially if you're building your career on a platform of other people's. Well, you know, it looks it, it ends up looking like success on on the backs of, of those who are disadvantaged and, you know, underserved. You know, you kind of have to think a little more clearly is that, you know, am I do I really know <laughs> what's happening there and and really again living with community or spending time there you know picking up the phone talking to people yeah i would say that you act as a way of depoliticizing both sides which not easy uh even when you think of like you go on facebook and you've got a really close friend and it turns out they're like yeah. supporting republican viewpoints and then you go to your next I, well, page that's and they're right. democrats well, well, and you're it, pulling them together so could you tell us about what that journey's been like to be between both sides to sit down with a, co- a corporation and understand the real challenges they're facing and then to be in an indigenous community and see the very real challenges they're facing and try and uh articulate that. I, I think when I was younger, I had 
You know, I, I would just take it all in and then not reserve enough time for the healing, right? Um, and I'm very, I feel very grateful for having friends who are adamantly against that pipeline. I mean, fiercely protesting against, but I still call them my brothers and sisters who I get to go to their high school graduations for their, for their, for their kids. And, and then I have those folks who, want work with a pipeline, who, who get it, who, you know, worked with me for so many years to understand at least what the potential could be if the right circumstances happen to continue to exist. And, and I think for me, what, where I've been successful or I guess happy with my approach is that um, I feel like I've been consistent with what I can do and what I can bring to the table and definitely, as I've matured in my career, being able to say or being able to identify really quickly what I can't do. But I know sort of on a human level what it's like to develop a good friendship. And been I've been able to be consistent for those people who know me. Um, and in the work, you know, that's why as a social scientist or a sociologist and anthropologist, using you know, grounded theory and adapting to an impact assessment context was so important for me because I knew people would be always challenging me on what I know and how I know it. And I just feel really grateful that the legislation finally is caught up to matching or being able to need the kind of information that I've gotten really good at collecting. So it's that kind of personal interpersonal consistency and then again, also professional consistency that I've developed a methodology that can be easily replicated. It really can. And that's what I want it to be. I don't want it just to sit with me. It needs to be shared. Everybody, you know, and, and there are requirements. Um, but you're not always going to have a perfect situation. So how do you develop a method and approach that kind of takes that into consideration? And I think I have. That's That's sort of what I feel really proud being able to share that with our team at Impact Resolutions and the kind of work that we do that can, you know, really help people make evidence-based decisions, um, being secure in, in the kind of information that's being presented. That's really important. That's amazing. And I think that it's so motivational to hear that because I feel like we're in a time where it's really easy to delete people you disagree with to yeah, decide so easy. this isn't yeah. this isn't a person that aligns with my values but you're constantly put in a position where there's both sides and you can you can at least understand where they're coming from even if you don't conclude that their viewpoints right and so I'm interested to know what that that healing journey is like for you how did you go about <laughs> developing that because that's that's a tolling thing even when you're trying to I've been in a room with people I disagree with yeah. and trying to reason it out and hear their viewpoints and trying to open Okay, we're gonna. I'm yeah. gonna try and get you to see this perspective. It's, it's draining it, personally. That's so, right. how do you handle that? I, you know, I think I, again, for all the pain that I experienced as a child, um, in my youth, as an adult, I was able, and I think the healing at the time when I was younger was turning it into purpose. So, the purpose of being able to manage really complicated, you know, conversations or being able to overcome, you know, some great, you know, distrust or conflict. That was the purpose that was also healing. 
on a personal level. And then it caught up to me in my 40s where it's like, oh, yeah, I got to deal with my own trauma. <laughs> and it happened to coincide as I exited the Coastal Gas Link project as well to go, whoa, what happened there? I'd, I'd been so focused on, you know, turning pain into purpose sort of individually, what's next? And I, you know, having worked for in these contexts for most of my career, it was really impact resolutions that healed me. And that and and in starting a company that I've been able to feel safe in and create a safe space for all the team members to flourish in is kind of another aspect of that healing for me. Because I, I know it, people say it's important to separate your professional from your personal, but I can't. I, I think it should all be complimentary and energizing. And, and, and people ask me, where do you get your energy from? It's from that. It's, it's being, being able to, you know, create an environment where people feel safe to be awesome. And to like not be bullied, not be harassed, not feel questioned, and and being able to take any additional profits. I'm not saying I'm we're you know we're, we're growing in the right direction to test things that people will usually say. Well, we've not done that before. I want to be able to say, well, we tried it and it works. Like and here it is, right? And because it's not my ideas, this is sort of a collaboration of all of our ideas. So really, that healing has been in a professional space. For for me, because my identity was so crushed at such an early age that I kind of had to find out what that looked like. Um, and, and again, it was about putting that pain in, uh, towards a purpose. But really kind of later in my in my life, it was an impact resolution. So I finally have a safe space. And it's not only because I'm a CEO and the founder of the company, it's, that's an aspect of it, but it's because of the people I get to work with like, and, and the projects that we get to work on. It's like, oh, that's right, I'm doing the right thing. I keep going. <laughs> so That's amazing. Can you tell us about your personal background growing up? You said you had to go through some healing journey there. Can you tell us about um, what it was like growing up and, and some of the challenges you faced? Yeah, thank you um, for asking. I was born in Indonesia. Um, I was adopted as a baby. What I do know about my biological parents is that, or my biological family, my mother from my mother's side, um, they were Bougainese and Muslim, um, and fairly sort of high in that community at the time. And uh, my biological mother was very young um, and gave me away to. Um, a Canadian family, a Canadian Irishman, and a Chinese Malay woman. Unfortunately, that childhood wasn't at all, you know, have, having gone through, you know, years of, you know, physical and sexual and emotional violence, you you build up a bit of a, um, I guess, a, a, a thick skin. And, you know, I, I'm, I've been able to work through that, again, really quite late in my life, but uh, it led me to some interesting places at the same time, because I think at a, as a very young child, I knew I didn't have to stay to feel validated. And so I, I think it was just in my nature to run away, <laughs> which I did. And I ended up living in an informal foster system in my early teens and ended up living on my own in sort of my mid to late teens. And, you know, 
in that, again, sort of healing and, and sort of finding myself wasn't great at high school. Um, I, you know, you also being, or for myself being a, you know, a person of color, a minority in a sort of a, a predominantly white Christian community that also had another dynamic, which again, I, I see that as gifts. Like I see that as giving me perspectives and an empathy that has given me the, the insight to work with the people I do today. Um, and not to say that, you know, I, I need to be anybody's savior, but again, it gives me that I, I, I get it. You know, I, I get what hurt looks like. I get what misunderstanding looks like. And I was able to turn that into something, again, purposeful for me. And, and that was, you know, really that healing. And I ended up, how I ended up in an you know, working in Indigenous relations. Um, I ended up hitchhiking. I don't recommend this for anybody else, but at the time, it seemed like a good idea. And I had traveled to the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and I was living on reserves. Um, at the time, and this is in the 90s, you could work in bars and no one would card you. And really understanding, like, what's going on here? You know, high rates of poverty, no electricity, no running water. And I'm in Canada. Like it just, it just kind of confused me more. And the more time I spent there, the more questions I have. So that really drove me to search for that better understanding. That's when I came back to the mainland after a few stop and starts. And I was living in Alberta for a while. Um, and I went back to school to really understand that relationship between Indigenous peoples in Canada and, and Canada. And there was this new program um, at Langer College, the Aboriginal Studies program, where, again, that was a huge part of my healing. Like, I was nurtured by some of the best practitioners, like, who, who again was really focused on, you know, it's not how much you're memorizing. You, we were graded on how much we were giving back to the community. And I just flourished there. I loved it. Like some of my biggest mentors who, who really encouraged me, you know, to, to further my studies in sociology and anthropology at SFU and said, SFU will be perfect for you. And yeah, it's, it was there that, um, you know, with my sort of early years, I, I feel like I was able to find my my calling, although it wasn't a straight path to get there. That's amazing. Can we go back a little bit? Uh, like, what was it like to not have a connection with your with your family? Like, was that uh, really challenging to process? How did you kind of overcome that? Yeah, I I didn't probably overcome that or process that too well when I was younger um, and that came into uh, you know a sort of a larger search to understand other people's stories and and meet people um, you know the hitchhiking really helps being able to um, create the space to daydream and to imagine a different kind of life um, I was really into music I'm a, a hand percussionist um, I like you know, really having a lot of time on my own um, as well. So, you know, I camped in the bush for close to nine months, kind of as a as I as I needed to at that time. So, you know, I think it gave me the insight and kind of the space. If if I was 
in my community still, um, I think I would be a very different person and I might not be here today. I would, I would have a very different life, but I had this nature to search for something better. Music is one of those things that I feel like um, it helps us process some. Like there, it, you go somewhere else, and I don't know, I don't know why we don't talk about yeah. it more. I don't. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I, dancing, music, like you know, I, I think I'm a happy hippie at heart. So I was really attracted to those kinds of people, artists, uh, writers. I wrote a lot too as, as a young person. Um, I, I sort of spent a lot of time roaming and wandering. It, you could say quite a bit of a, a walkabout for my teens. <laughs> I think that really helped and not having the sort of social or familial control telling me what I am because what people were telling me felt really different from how I felt. Can you tell us about that? Like what were some of, what did you feel like other people thought you were in comparison to who you are? Because I think we all we fall into that. We yeah. yeah. And, I, and I see that with youth I work with today. Um, and, you know, and it was really powerful to learn you know, in sociology and anthropology, that our lives are constructed by our external influences, but we can reconstruct them. And that's a really powerful thought. And, you know, in in my early sort of education, and this is where I get really, you know, energized by anti-racism work, especially in, in sort of education systems or in other organizations, you know, when when you're young and you're told, well, you're not white enough to, you know, to be in that school play or, or to do this or to do that, you know, I, I didn't have, maybe there's something in my brain that wouldn't accept that kind of criticism or being called stupid, you know, by teachers and authorities or even having your sort of that trust by authorities broken um, through other forms of, you know, sort of, um, abuse. Like, I I don't know where. I just had this nature not to accept that reality. And that's sort of what kind of propelled me to move on to find my community. Right. Um, and I don't think everyone, you know, I, I, I feel myself as really grateful because I know that's not everybody's story. And I remember seeing someone who I grew up with you know, a mother who lived next door and she said, I am so surprised you're not drug addicted and a, or a prostitute. Like that was a real thing she said when she met me again at 18. Like she was just so impressed that I had overcome that. And at the time it was sort of like a backhanded compliment, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, you're right. Actually <laughs> I am. But that, that was kind of, you know, the environment or the context that's thrown at you that you don't really, you know, I didn't really take too seriously, but was only able to reflect on kind of later and, you know, didn't let it penetrate my soul at the time, right? It only kind of energized me and gave me the confidence that I don't need to be here. And I moved five different high schools. I lived in Pender Harbor and then I moved to Vancouver Island with, with a family because I felt safe with them. That didn't end up you know, being, you know, that's kind of where I ended up moving on to a number of different high schools and, and sort of ended up living on my own. But, you know, 
thank goodness. You know, I had a family who felt sorry for me to take me in. Otherwise, I being in that situation, like, is so toxic. So I, you know, the work that I do with youth now, I, I get all that they're going through. I know how, you know, it feels and how important it is to sort of remind ourselves that's one construction, one reality that can be reconstructed. And we can do that by creating a space or focusing on creating a space in our minds that allows us to feel that potential again. Yeah, you. it sounds like you're um, disagreeable in like a healthy way. Like I can, uh, I did a personality test and I scored really high on disagreeableness. Right. interesting. Because yeah. um, for me, like when s- teachers would tell my mom, your kid doesn't look like they're going on the right track, yeah. like they're probably going to join a gang, like they're not going to graduate. My mindset was like, you don't know me. Yeah. You're not my friend. Like you don't understand what my home circumstance is like, who I am, why I'm like this at school. You're and so, just assuming. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was not, I didn't take the, what they said to heart. I didn't, it made me want to prove them wrong. And even out now. Out of spite. That's yeah. right. Out of spite, I think I'm successful. Yeah. Because it, it's sort of, yeah, no, I, I feel you there. It's, and that's it. It's sort of, I was really curious about, you know, especially when I was confronted by that adult who knew me when I met them again at 18. Well, why am I like that? That's kind of where that human interest sort of, you know, resilience, understanding in people became really important. And in the development work that I've done, why I understand why it's important for people to feel included and to feel safe like in sharing their information and how precious those stories are to be to to really feel and and protect them and then being able to communicate it in a way where people get it you know that that's really the sort of where things shine for me because of i know what it's like when people spread things about you that aren't true or that you're not able to defend yourself because you know some mothers think of you of this way. So I, I get what all that means when you feel like everything is working against you. Yeah. And it seems like one of the benefits you had, perhaps benefit and con, was that you were able to leave relationships when they weren't uh, respecting your boundaries totally. or something. So could you tell us yeah, about that? And, and, and <laughs> I think it's, you know, at the time – it's really good when you're surviving and but it's not really great when you're looking to develop a, a meaningful interpersonal relationship. So, you know, my familial, my institutional circumstances, the community circumstances, you know, I don't look back with any regret on abandoning toxic relationships. Was that scary though at the time? No, it was it was ex- it was like when you when you kind of like being able to step out and it's a fishbowl. Right. And the sort of the energy that comes back to you when you're able to step out of that fishbowl and look at it from that perspective, it's like, oh, what's next? Right. And and I, I didn't have the tools yet to develop good relationships. So I was it was a lot of trial and error in trusting the wrong people and trusting the right people and screwing up that relationship. And, you know, the unconditional love that people have shown me after me screwing up relationships, I am just in awe and so grateful for because, yeah, that that's it. It's that unconditional love that is, is the missing quotient, I think, that's important. 
Um, but again, I don't think you need, you know, like, I don't think you need to be like myself where you need to constantly move to find it. And I only found it later in life. But and then it took a lot of practice to develop good friendships that weren't professional. Right. <laughs> That's the thing. And and I think I've found that now. But and, I, and I'm still practicing. I, I know I'm really messy on some days. But and again, I, I'm I feel really safe at impact resolutions because I can, you know, there's forgiveness on, on being, you know, not perfect, I guess. And that's what I try to say. It's not about being perfect. It's about being able to screw up and being okay with that. Right. Yeah. I really think that that's such an important example that you're setting because uh, like so many people have bad relationships with their family oh, um, yeah. and there's different stories that you're going to find, but there's this sense of like, this is who I am, I guess. And this is my family. And I think the the biggest growing part, and I know that it's perhaps cliche to say, but family isn't just in the blood. You can have strong familial relationships. Like my grandmother, who's not my biological grandmother, mm. is why I started this. And I think that mm. being able to appreciate what she did, adopting my mother and, and raising her. Right. was yeah. was such a benefit and now it's like how do I build on that mm. legacy but I, I really appreciate your willingness to admit that like you perhaps pushed boundaries in those early stages yeah. because I think that that's yeah. what people do when they've been hurt is they want to see are you going to be here yeah. if I screw up or are you only yeah. here because it's the good time you said it that's that's exactly it you're constantly testing relationships because you're used to being disappointed you're just waiting for that other ball to drop where or that you know i people want just to be my friend because they want to sexualize me or um treat me horribly or think that i'm you know it, it, you you kind of integrate that into testing relationships and you know you, you do that when you're young and then as as you age again that's where i took that pain into purpose by applying it into schools and you know or into my education because that gave me a space where I was an equal ground and people can evaluate me on what I produced versus, you know, what I looked like. I shaved my head a couple of times when I, like, I was just like really trying to minimize myself physically or sort of externally because I wanted people to see the inside. That's one thing that always stands out to me. I'll see people walking down the road with blue hair or red hair and I don't like I know that the common trope is to like judge them and be like, what are you doing? But for, I get it. for me, it's like this is what they have control over or what they feel like they have yeah, control over in their it. life is just that's all I've got is my hair. And that's all that I feel like people are judging me here, here and here. So the only thing I get to decide on is what color my hair is. And I, I sympathize with that because there is a sense of your life is predetermined yeah. by other people's perceptions yeah. of who you can go become. Yeah. And often people don't leave their community to go figure out who am I without these people's viewpoints of me kind of influencing how I see myself. Well, and, and you said it like, so these are the communities and circumstances of which I'm entering as a proponent. Like I'm coming out and triggering conversations and asking people to test their identities and their relationships based on things that they didn't really ask for. And that I always keep, you're right. It, it's, what do people feel like they have control of? And we need to consider that when we're developing policies for people, supposedly. Like, it's more than just the things that we need to feed ourselves and survive on. It's the, like, how much 
power, how empowered do people feel or not feel? Yeah, I, I look at people with blue hair, I'm like, you know, like, kind of like this. And I, I remember telling a colleague, oh, I can't wait to dye my hair, like, pink now that I have my uh, my own company. <laughs> and I had a friend, no, 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 just just way to build up your, <laughs> your reputation first before, you know, before you start meeting clients with a shaved, you know, mohawk. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's a weird relationship we have, though, right? Because we're lucky and I think that this is a growing conversation of like, we're happy and I'm happy to see mm. more women running organizations and leading the way. And so we're trying to break down some of these perceptions on what's correct business practices what's and what's good, incorrect. What's good etiquette, not good etiquette. And and it really, you just wish and you desire. And I think people like you and me, for, to, to us to see sort of being evaluated on what we, what we do versus what we look like, right? Yeah. And it's... Yeah, I'm mean, I'm excited and I see that going in the right direction too. I just hope it doesn't fall into the direction of forgetting about those you know the our emotional aspects or spiritual aspects because I think once we do we we fall back into the status quo. Yeah. Right? And I think it's easy to um do those types of things dye your hair and stuff for the wrong reasons and I say that's probably the predominant like if it's an 80-20 rule it's probably 80% <laughs> of people doing it for the like feeling like they don't have control mm. and so when you see it you there is an assumption maybe this person's got something going on yeah. in their life that's not going right and this is yeah. what they're doing to kind of try and handle that yeah. but what was that kind of development into going to school was that a tough mm. transition from being able to be so free oh my gosh it was it was incredible like I, but again, it was this weird needing to prove myself that I'm worth it and that I can do this. Because having been told throughout my whole education that I'm not good enough or smart enough, it became fueled by this really wanting to understand that relationship between Indigenous peoples and Canada. And, you know, I, I had some really great mentors and, you know, who you know, again, I found that purpose and I was struggling. I had to learn how to write again. And I went to Douglas College first, actually you had to kind of upgrade yourself as a mature student to be qualified to be able to apply. And passing that first year was such a huge like, oh, like, I, you know, I did that, you know, and, and, oh, yeah, like the struggles, but also the, it was able to feel back sort of um, something that, I wasn't getting outside. Like I was able to produce that for myself. And I was the kind of student where, you know, I was obsessed about doing the right thing, about doing it well. And I'm so glad I did because I was able to build that muscle memory um, after really struggling that, you know, by, by the time I reached my graduate work, I was just such a better writer. And even now I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm such a great writer compared to what I was. Like writing is all, like I love writing journals, but technical writing, like that's something that I'm really proud of myself. I've been able to sort of build into muscle memory versus, yeah, having when I started out half, you know, starting school again. That was a real challenge. Right. You've men mentioned uh, mentors a few times. Who were some of those people and what, uh, like, 
people impact us in ways that perhaps we don't expect or we don't see、um, in the moment. So, who were some、mm. of those people? And and hopefully, people can hear this and see how they can perhaps set a better example for the people around them.、Uh, so, wh- who were some of those people, and what did they do that made them、uh, put you in such, make you see them in such high esteem? Yeah, I you know again, I I think you know I'm so grateful for those who. You know, continue to love me. I think even you know in my early years where I was just such a screw up, and you know really screwed up a number of times. So my uncle, who's now passed, like he he was a big influence on my life, and you know he knew there were rough times would bring me out fishing, and that's where we wouldn't talk, but he knew that's the space I needed.、Um, You know the other mentors.、Um, Sorry, what were those fishing trips like? And like, how did that come about? <laughs> oh, well, he he's a prawn fisherman in in Pender Harbor,、um, and he would just take me out in the boat early in the morning, and we would be out in the boat all day. And this is sort of after like collecting me from being just you know a bad kid in the streets, like at like at the middle of the night, and then kind of like my punishment would be let's go take you know let's go fishing, <laughs> and just kind of having that one on one time with him. So he, this was this your biological? No,、uncle? he was this sort of like your your grandma. He was、uh, really good friends of my mom.、Um, Uh, my aunt, my uncle Dwight, and my auntie Juanita.、Um, they were from the Yukon diamond miners. Had five kids, and the majority of their kids were still there. And you know, he was just one of those really great, solid guys who also did not have a great sort of youth and maybe early years, and saw, I don't know, something special in me, and just felt that he knew I didn't have anybody. And sort of when I was still at home before I ran away, that that was he always kept me kind of in high regard still, and was always kind of there not to punish me in a way where I'm not going to hear it. He would just kind of just take me away from the space and the anger I was feeling, and go out fishing all the time.、Wow. So yeah, I have really fond memories, and I I spent my whole childhood like a really young kid fishing. Like I was a big tomboy, so. That's kind of where. Do you still fish at all? I do actually. Yeah,、um, I ended up working at a fishing lodge between semesters, not too well, fifteen years ago now. But then I I still fish where when I can. I don't enough. I tried fly fishing when I was <laughs> living in Talqua. Horribly, so different from ocean fishing. So yeah, I I love the water.、Um, I like being able to sort of, yeah. You know, being able to think like I'm feeding myself in that way,、um, but yeah, that you know, he was a big mentor,、um, and Helen, you know, Dr. Helen Cruz, who actually it was in an effort to try to meet more Indonesian people in Vancouver because I had known I didn't know anybody. I just ended up picking up the phone book. When phone books were more available, and you know, searching for Indonesian people or who I thought were Indonesian people, I'd oh, my name is Peppy, and I really want to learn more about the Indonesian culture. And can you introduce me to anyone? Would you like to meet with me? And、uh, the consular general of、uh, the Indonesian consular general here in Vancouver, he took pity on me and he invited me over. To break fast with them during Ramadan, as as it is today, and、um, that's where I met Dr. Helen Cruz, who is a sociologist trained in Cornell, and、um, she's Filipina, but she had lived in Indonesia for 
a decade more and actually had really helped me try to find more information on my biological parents. We fell in love. I mean, like, she's the kind of lady, and she's 84. We see each other. Like, she's like my mom, basically. Um, she, you know, salsa dances. She drinks beer. She walks up mountains. And, like, she's been doing that until COVID, right? Like, she's just – and, and the, the person who gave me my first international opportunity. So, you know, really taught me a lot about what's important in my field. Like, she's – She's the wor- first woman in international development doing what I do. She worked in the 60s and 70s in Afghanistan, um, in Pakistan. I- I've later done work in these areas too, but she, you know, she was the only woman at the table in- at that time and was always fierce about where are the women? Where are the women? That, that was her first question. And, you know, she really impressed upon me. It's not how much you know, it's how much you're sharing. How much you're giving away, how much you're passing on this knowledge, because it doesn't mean anything if it sits inside you. So I that, you know, she's in terms of family, she's my family. Was that hard to reach out to the Indonesian community or yeah, exciting? I, I was excited. Like I kind of always done that. Like if I saw an interesting, I kind of just pick up the phone and, and just wanting to learn more. How can I help? And so it wasn't at the time. Um, maybe in reflection, if I was doing it now, it might be. But um, no, it was really lovely. And I, I continue to interact with the Indonesian community here. Um Certainly um, discovering my religion more, um, just sort of the more about uh, the immigrant experience here as well. So, yeah, I continue to work with them. Can you tell us about uh, the religious elements? Because uh, one of my passions mm-hmm. that's come since my grandmother has passed is mm-hmm. she was a Catholic. Right. And now I'm interested in the indigenous culture, but I'm interested mm. in where they overlap. So like mm. uh, a quick example would be like grace and salmon right. ceremonies. Yeah. There's an overlap between the two. And so I enjoy hearing that. And I think that right now it's it's a, an unpopular time to mm. be uh, believing that religion has some sort of value. But I think the tenets of how to live a good life exists there. And so I'm interested to know. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. I, I think for me it's about... You know, in terms of the Muslim religion, I I see um, five time praying, you know, five times a day as making that space for you to focus your time of meditation, like fasting. Like there are all these elements of religion that we can take it to be what what you want it to be. And And for me in my adulthood, I've 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 really embraced sort of my roots and 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 working in in areas that are largely Muslim populated. That's where I've really sort of discovered my religion in in that regard and and taken them as sort of instruction on on sort of and giving me that space to really focus on healing and and that connection with God. But it, it's, you know, and I think with a, a, as it might be for someone who is Catholic in the same way, it's just sort of making that time to give thanks, to pay respect. And gosh, I, I'll take any instruction and structure around that because it's not something I can like I can do. And I've, I've maybe always tried to meditate or create that space, but I really enjoy sharing those rituals with people. 
and being able to celebrate things with people and, and have that sense of belonging, I think is really important. And you can find it in religion, but, or you can find it elsewhere. But it, for me, it's important to find it somewhere. Yeah, I, I just feel like right now we have it better than I think we've ever had it in human history in terms yeah. of resources and being able to like, if you think of uh, when when you were growing up, there wasn't like resources for counseling that were just oh, super accessible. And all. so yeah. the world's so different yeah. now that we can address, but yet it seems like we've never been worse that like when we look at the depression rates or the the anxiety rates and we look at these things it feels like we're we're always looking to perhaps be more productive or get something more done and it's never enough and then you think of being grateful for what we have and slowing down and going wow like i have this incredible avocado that had to travel from this whole other country supply chains exactly like when you start to look at that it's like Wow, like you just see how everything is connected. And you're right. It's sort of the the spirituality component, the religious component is something, you know, I was really hopeful with COVID. If you're going to see a silver lining is finally people could slow down and take the space they might have used for travel to get to work for something in themselves. And, and that's certainly the approach I took. Um and I, I, don't, I don't know if the timing is right where people are more sensitive to that or at least more accepting that we can have different kinds of beliefs and, um, and interests that might not be professionally driven, right? Our success is not the dollars that we make. It's really the time and how we're able to use that time. I don't know if that's a cliche, but it feels really important to me. And, and you know, my idea of success is sort of like – can I travel at certain points of the year? Can I travel anywhere and work? Like those are things that, you know, I'd really like to explore and make possible. Yeah, I love that your your mindset regarding like finding a way for your work to be also your passion and your, yeah. your life. Because I I always think it's strange when people are seeking to completely separate the two and put one into one category and one in the other. And I think that that's sort of what you have to do if you're doing a job like McDonald's yeah. where you don't care about like what the outcome is going to be. Uh, but you still come home at the end of the day and you're frustrated by what happened at work. So yes. you're... you're your exactly. personal life isn't allowed to leak into your professional work, yeah. but your professional work absolutely leaks into your personal life. And and that's where, like, when I was growing up, mm-hmm. I'd see people, like, uh, parents abuse their children because they hate their job. And so it's like, you per- can't pretend that you're separating the two, at yeah. least in my opinion. No, and, and for that reason alone, because, you know, we, if we don't feel... If we separate them, then we're, yeah, we're just going to project that anger without context, right? And it's, yeah, I, I've seen that too. And, and I'm, I'm not, I'm also guilty of leaking that, you know, the professional stresses seeping into how I might treat my partner because I feel like what's happening in my mind is more important than what's happening right here. Yeah. And, and that's where, again, the healing and impact resolutions has given me that safety, that space. Again, I keep repeating space, but it's really important for me that I can, I can really, I, uh, I don't know, I guess sort of explore what that possibility might look like. And for everybody like on the team, because it, it almost killed me to separate that too, where the professional was just all that there was, and especially when you're doing community work. But where are you in that? 
you know, you're you're hidden, you're diminished, and that that wasn't healthy either. Particularly because you're going into communities and it's who you are that they're yeah. connecting with. Yeah. And when that's not able to be replenished or be noticed or valued and when it's because it sounds like it you gets toxic. You yeah. you start self medicating, it, it gets nasty and, and that's sort of that's not healthy either, right? It's sort of again, it, it's quick fixes. And that's where I think the spiritual, the religious component has really forced me to slow down. And, you know, when I, I was speaking about Roxy and Suki, like that was the moment where I made a decision for myself that I don't have to always leave. Sorry, could you say who Roxy and oh. Suki <laughs> my, my two shih tzus. <laughs> but it was really that decision. Like I've always wanted dogs. and But that was always a symbol that my life is going to be really changing because my career, I was always away. And right now, I like I can be away, but I want to be able to bring them. And if I can't, I'm not going to take that contract. <laughs> it's It kind of, it needs to fit. So that was really symbolic for me to make that decision. And it sounds like it grounded you a little bit it to did. something, to an area, to a spot that you might not have had previously. Oh, absolutely. And like I was saying earlier, I, I love the Fraser Valley. And I, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really honored that we're here because we get to sort of, I get to work and then there's some really great dog walks everywhere. It's just, it's really exciting. So I feel like all the things that I've been able to reflect on the past while messy at times. And, you know, I, I, for anybody who's listening and who's known me and I, I love you, I care about you and thank you for, for being part of my journey. And I hope I was able to share and, and it, that was reciprocal that you got something from me too. Right. That yeah. is absolutely beautiful. And I think we're, we're lucky that you're willing to share that, that part of the journey because it's so easy to get caught up in the work life and getting, oh, I need to get here. And I see that a lot with law students is that oh, we're always yeah. looking for the next step and that, oh, where are we going to go now? And, and how are we going to go succeed there? And then how are we going to climb that ladder? Oh, absolutely. It, it becomes so strategic that you forget about the moments that kind of that are grounding yeah. and that are important because it it's not sustainable to, because uh, I did that up until my 40s <laughs> it was like that like it was like dur, 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 and then you hit a wall and your body tells you you can't work anymore yeah your body will tell you before your mind will tell you so for me you know as i reach you know i'm 45 this year i think and i'm really excited about that that i'm finally like really thinking about how work fits into me versus the other way around i really admire that because the thing that uh silently breaks my heart the most is when people like i don't want to date myself and it's like i have a lot of guests who have said that and it's oh, like I, I yeah why why is that a bad thing like you're like my mindset is that and i'm having on a, a nurse who's an expert in aging shortly here because yeah. i think we look at aging the wrong we look at it as like you're devaluing yourself oh, over time and i don't agree with that i don't agree with that either i love aging and you know, I, I forget my age quite often. I And this is from Dr. Helen Cruz. She's 84 and just didn't know her age until her body told her, yeah, you're 84 <laughs> and you can't, you know. But it was that frame of mind that it was so intoxicating. And I feel, I feel really blessed about having known her for so long since my early 20s, right? So, yeah, it's... 
it it really starts here, but getting there is you know don't you know I don't want to give any impression that that this journey was easy to get to that frame of mind where I'm not concerned about my age because I know that took a lot of work to get there, like a lot of work. Can you tell us just about some of the things you hope uh, somebody else, if you were to give advice yeah. to somebody who's going through maybe they're thinking of leaving home, what would you, mm. what would your advice to them be um, to kind of get through those times? Yeah, um, you know, going back to, you know, who we think we are and we, we have a constructed identity and again, the beauty in that we can reconstruct that, but Getting our minds and our energy and ourselves out of bed is to find that purpose, whatever that is, to do it. And it's, you know, sometimes it's minute by minute that, you know, you pass that minute and you're okay. And then, it, you know, it's every 15 minutes till it's every hour. That's okay. And, you know, don't rush yourself that you need to be perfect or anything until you find it inside. And I, I think that's what saved me for sure. That's beautiful. Yeah. So then you take this course at Langara. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and then you you move on to go to SFU. What was that? Was that intimidating at all? Like SFU's got a, a strong brand name, a little intimidating. It, it, what was was, like? it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. Like grad school was intimidating for sure. But my BA, I was just really coming off that, yay, let's change the world. And I found like, um, you know, looking at the or social construction of reality through sort of a, a class lens and could really find some understanding around, you know, some of the issues in, in sort of the indigenous rights and title sphere. Like I was coming off of that, like on land claims and um, understanding how people are disadvantaged in economic and political systems. So I was really excited to SFU to sort of be immersed in another way of looking at the world that we live in um, and a way to reframe it to make it better. So, yeah, I was really energized by it. And I was just, you know, I... I was fell into a really great, amazing group of people that became, you know, really close during those years of university. Um, yeah, I just got really involved in a lot of different kind of social activities. And I, yeah, I really flourished at that time. Um, and that's sort of where I got the energy and this light to sort of explore more about myself and my Indonesian heritage. And Oh, another mentor, Mar Marilyn Gates and, and others, John Bogardis, like Marilyn Gates, like her first, my first class, she's an anthropologist, like really this fierce, amazing woman who who's very grounded in, in a heart-centered approach, right? And and taught us that, you know, anthropologists are going through their own identi identity crisis and really imparted upon us it's not how much you're taking it's how much you're giving back like this spirit of reciprocity this mutual benefit and research and she scolded us she's like your success is not your own your success is because of the the group the community of people whether they're related to you or not who helped to bring you here and it was just like wow this woman was just like so inspiring and gave me that sort of room to really grow with some really crazy ideas. Like she was just like, 
go for it. Like she was like, really excited about my thinking at that time and uh, John Bogardus as well. And I already started working in, in the Philippines too. So I was just so busy and, 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 and really enjoying my education. So in indigenous culture, we have this idea of seven generations that we're supposed to look back right. on those seven generations of people and what their hopes were, their dreams, mm. their aspirations. Um, like I think of particularly like with Indian residential schools, what would have been the hopes, prayers and dreams mm. of the people attending those schools and how can my generation play those dreams and hopes out? Right. What was that like for you? Because that's sort of what it sounds like she was saying mm. was that like what what can you take from their story and the community around you and how they've built you up? What can you build upon in regards to that? Yeah, I, you know, when I started the work in the Philippines in the involuntary resettlement context and living with them, how I interpreted that was actually founding the Enrichment League, which, you know, for me, you know, permission to be invited back. But I started a nonprofit in 2007 and it was this collective effort from university students. And it was really, and then I was also putting myself through uni. I was an onboard supervisor at this local cruise ship company. So I would hold like fundraising you know, sort of efforts with like like live local musicians and sort of like being able to bring people together to share the, you know the stories of why we were raising money because three thousand dollars would put three schools for twelve months you know their um, teacher salaries education supplies so for me it was like of course I would do that so it was around you know the the nonprofit and it we still continue it today, um, was really giving um, opportunities for communities to develop independent economies from industry and government, whatever that looks like. Today it looks like, and we're doing through impact resolutions um, in the form of sustainable ecocultural tourism in Pakistan and Turkey and Lebanon around the same principles about sort of creating economies that are independent from government and, and industry. But at the time in 2007, I was holding a lot of sort of live local fundraising music sort of endeavors. How did you have the confidence to do something? You think of people... I just did it. I, was, I don't even know. I was just... I just, again, was surrounded by a great group of people who really were just, like, really motivated by the cause. And then, like, you just decided one day, or did this take time to build up? Like, it was how did one it... day. I, I ended up sort of, again, picking up the phone book and going, oh, there's other nonprofits out there, and ended up partnering with uh, Eco de Saloro. I'm saying this really wrong, but it was a nonprofit doing similar kinds of things in the Okanagan. And it was my first, actually, introduction to consensus-based decision-making. And they were actually just going through their AGM, and, and I was on on the I, you know, so whether they would accept my my proposal, but they were making some decisions in a, a consensus format that took two days. Wow. I was like, what? it was my first, in, like, I'd all always sort of promoted consensus-based decision-making, but to really be in it. And that's where I, I spent, I, I was only planning to be there for an afternoon, but I ended up being there for three days and they accepted me and I was able to use their charitable tax status to then raise the money. And yeah, just kind of grew from there. And, and it was my work with Harbor Cruises and the work that I did with the student union that I was able to, again, to sort of leverage those other spheres in my life to then raise money and um, 
when I, I, I used to love, I love dancing and of course, you know, an opportunity to meet live local musicians and invite them into the cause. You know, people are really great about donating their time or at least partial their time. Was it hard to organize or was it, did it come pretty easy? I've, I've been in the food and beverage industry since I was nine. I started out as a dishwasher and I've moved my way up through. So like at Harbor Cruises, I was organizing huge events. Oh, okay. So I, I, it's kind of, I'm really, um, actually, and then I, in my early twenties, I had my own bartending business for, for like kind of other events, but I'm, I'm used to organizing events yeah. that way. So yeah. And then you what you did that traveling and you were working with communities yeah. when did it become more official when did it yeah um i think at the time when i did my graduate even though i was working while i was doing my ba um i would only go there when i had time off of course and then it increased when i started you know i, I had permission to use that work um that i was doing in the philippines as part of my graduate work as well. So I continued on at SFU to do my sociology and anthropology graduate work. And uh, that was there. I did, you know, nine months of field work. It, it was a PhD packed into an, a master's thesis, but I should have done a PhD. But I, at the time, I was like, and another mentor of mine kind of suggested, you know, if you love doing this work, you know, stay in it by just getting your master's. And I agreed. I said, I just want to continue doing the great work. So um, it was after my graduate work, then I was hired. Sorry, what was your master's work on? Because it's very yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah. It's a sociology and anthropology graduate work um, through a medical sociological lens, trying to understand the psych psychosocial impacts of involuntary resettlement in the San Roque Dam case. And Really, again, I was really keen on developing a socioeconomic impact assessment tool that would be easily replicated um, and that would give the information that a proponent would need very early on to develop the uh, information requirements for proper scoping. So that's where I think, you know, most development or any projects fall short is having the right information to make better decisions about budget. Sorry, that was very intimidating. I think for some people who don't know what socioeconomic. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. um, so there's a requirement. Um, so socioeconomic impact assessment is really understanding all the social parts of our environment. So a company might want to understand the biophysical aspects if they build there or what the impacts on water quality. And at the time, socioeconomic impact assessment was one way to understand people. And I, I think it has some, you know, there, there are limitations to that. So my career really built on the gender and then, you know, um, the community health aspects, again, building that medical sociological psychosocial lens like the emotional aspects the sense of place and then i i later in my career i realized we're actually talking about cumulative effects or our cumulative cells so it would encompass all those things so that's incredible and how did that go over because you with a master's you have to submit it get yeah reviewed. It, it it went really well actually the the graduate sort of defense um because again, my, my professors, like they, they acknowledge how much work went in. Like this is, 
um, two communities with, oh gosh, I can't remember how many interviews I did, but I was able to show how it was applied. Um, so it was easily defended. And I'm just so grateful to, and also these two mentors of mine as well, uh, Dr. Fernando DeMaio and uh, Dr. Michael Hathaway. Dr. DeMaio was the medical sociology uh, statistician. Um, and then uh, Dr. Hathaway was the anthropologist, very qualitative. So I got these really great, like qualitative, quantitative, of training um, and I for some reason I did really well at statistics which I didn't expect to do so well because I, I I screwed up in high school I failed math so many times but statistics just clicked for me interesting yeah. and so you started working primarily with corporations um, and then later on you started impact resolutions can you tell yeah. us about that time working with corporations yeah thank you um so mostly you know in, in the in a corporate context that was before impact resolutions uh, we expected to continue working in those industries, but we also realized uh, that it was sort of the bust, the natural gas bust in terms of where companies would need our set of skills and environmental application process. So, you know, we started doing other work that was more community focused with indigenous groups and, you know, sort of. Uh, with Indigenous groups who were sitting at the opposite end of the table, we were now working for them, <laughs> you know, with impact resolutions. And uh, it, it was a slow, long lead, I would say. Like, you know, um, it was myself and there are 23 members that founded it with me um, who were in on a, you know, either had their foot in the door just to kind of keep in, involved because they'd want to jump ship and retire with impact resolutions one day, or they were involved in a part-time to full-time basis. I would be remiss not to mention Sir Murray Slezak, who's, I would say, more like an older brother, even a father figure to me who, you know, when I came back from working internationally and came back to Canada, he was the only person to see my set of skills as important and valuable because I had start I had to start back from scratch back in Canada and he hired me um, through a consulting firm to do uh, the socioeconomic impact assessment for LNG Canada which I ended up doing for most of the major facilities in BC at the time but he ended up joining me at impact resolutions and I would not have the company if it wasn't without him who um kept us going, being able to help help with financing a lot of the projects in terms of developing the materials we need for uh, project proposals, business development, and is really just has been amazing mentor and coach. And uh, I think a lot of, maybe I'm, I'm making an assumption, but it was not like when I first started the company, a lot of the questions I, I was asked was, oh, don't you have children? How are you going to start that? How you Really? Like, um, no, I, I don't have children, number one. But would you ask a man? <laughs> like, I was kind of like, so it was an unforgiving environment for a woman of color who's very small as well. Um, so I, you know, we, it was, it was really great to have Murray who just really endorsed us. And we still have a majority of the members who are involved and 
So because those major projects weren't flourishing at that time, we ended up really focusing on smaller projects and just got bigger and bigger. And any additional funds we would put into our passion projects and our passion projects have really six years later are now our regular clients, which is really cool. (laughs) So what made you want to start Impact Resolutions? What was going on previously that kind of made you go, (laughs) I'm ready to branch out on my own and have my own philosophy and play that out? Because I think um, one interesting thing is that we see the, and I don't know if it, I'm mm. just a pes- pessimist, but I see the mission, value, statements, oh, philosophy, me too. and you read it, you're and you like, kind of really? go, "Sure, <laughs> that's that's what your priority is at Coca-Cola." Like, I'm sure that this is what you're worried about. Um, so, what made you kind of go, "This is what I'm ready to do. I want to bring my worldview mm. into reality." It was a healing journey for me um, after my last sort of, you know, working for a corporation, that was a very jarring experience. And again, the work with communities was a lot easier than dealing with the corporation itself. And um, again, I, I feel very grateful for those executive leadership who were there to really shield me from the rest of the corporation to do my work. And once they retired, um, let's just say uh, I, I exited. And um, I was provided a very healthy, uh, I, I, how do you say, a bonus. And it was that bonus. So it's like, I, this is what I need to do. And it was really that um, being able to prove that I'm, I'm valuable, I'm worth it. I'm, I really love my work and I wanted to continue that work. Um, that's where I put that bonus and into starting impact resolutions and having worked with the majority of people that are in impact resolutions in previous years, they too had experienced something similar. Like this was a time where thousands of people were being laid off, you know, um, in, a, in a, a matter of weeks, like the city of Calgary. I'm not sure if you remember that time. It was really harsh. And, and then those who remained in those in those environments where, you know, their workload had quadrupled and it was just so toxic. So those people who left those environments, I was able to attract because they, they'd worked with me before. They knew what I'm capable, capable of in terms of running a project, creating a safe environment where people felt awesome to flourish. And that was sort of the, the promise that I, I made that, um, you know, I did a lot of research as well and how to run or how to keep really awesome people. So creating projects that are meaningful, giving business development opportunities to people if they want it, but not forcing it upon them, um, creating a very clear work structure. And, and, and again, that over time sort of has been more refined, but I knew that was really important um, and pay people well. Right. That that as well. I know in a lot of consult like like I pay people top dollar. It's not maybe as good as, you know, oil and gas, but certainly um, just better than United Nations rates. And everyone knew what everyone else was making. So having that transparency and um, that was kind of really the focus was on building a really good environment, which I probably put too much effort in in the beginning and um, which has benefited us in the end. But um, refining the business development approach 
really came a little bit later after three years. We were just, you know, applying for requests for proposals, you know, being denied. And it's sort of like, it's very dehumanizing. So we instead kind of took all the energy we would put into that and put it into our interpersonal networks. So let's say we have a community, you know, we interact with that community. Well, we'll raise the money so we can work together. That has become way more successful than you know, these Hold on, break that down for people because that seems, oh, sure. seems great. <laughs> like when you're thinking of doing a business, that seems like unlikely. Right. Well, and, but that's the kind of work we wanted to do, right? So it's, you know, we have established this really great rapport and built long life relationships with a lot of communities and nonprofit organizations. What if instead of spending 30 hours into a request for a proposal um, for some blind government contract, what if we then worked with a community, identified the needs, identified the funding, applied for it, won it, and then we would continue the work. Like, And that has been more successful in terms of the kinds of work that we're winning versus this blind RFP approach. And you're also building a relationship from the outset that yeah. we're trying to help you. Together. And, that's, it's, it's, and that's sort of where, that's the sweet spot in my mind. And that's sort of where our passion projects have, are becoming our regular clients now. Wow. Can you tell us more about the decision? Because um, I'm sure you're seeing all over the news right now, can't find good people. You can't find good people, can't afford good people. And I think that your approach, um, I don't, I don't believe that you can't find good people. I think you can. Yeah. I really do. And, and we've never had to put out a um, a, a sort of a, a posting, an ad posting, because our work is generated very organically and based on the things that really energize us. So, you know, not to say like we, we, we still love doing the large scale impact assessments, but it's extremely competitive. And, and when there's such great, other projects to be done. So, you know, Murray has just done such remarkable things into building sort of an auditing team, an assessor team. Like we're still working in the natural gas industry, but we're now auditing their work. You know, (laughs) we're still, you know, doing regulatory work, but now we get to do work for regulatory agencies, right? So, but it's all because we have, I've been thinking and I've been working and building teams like this for so many years. It's now I get to do it for myself. I know who we need to do X, Y, and Z. Right. And so when you're hiring people on and you're talking about business development, can you just tell us about what that initial conversation with a potential staff member looks like? Because I don't, it almost seems like it's lip service for so many organizations to say, oh, we'll get you training. And then it's like one two hour course every year that you don't want to attend or something. Well, and and to be quite honest, like it's a, it's a growing company, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a single woman who founded a company to give an opportunity to people who are consultant professionals. So I provide insurance, I provide them benefits, and the protection of as working as an independent consultant without having the additional burden and the cost of that. And so how that works is, you know, as well, Impact Resolutions has um, provides the quality assurance, quality control, the graphic design. So independently, you can produce, you have to be all those things. But Impact Resolutions, when we win projects together, that's, you know, you be you, you be your subject matter expert, you, you then 
you know, five different people writing one thing is then given to me. I do the quality assurance, quality control, you know, editing, global editing in one voice, and then produce a remarkable graphic design output. It's just that's kind of how we operate. So that that's in bringing in new members. It's really to fit the things that we are probably expanding on. Um, the founding members, the 18 of us, um, that's we've grown it together to this point. So we've been able to attract work based on our interpersonal networks. That's amazing. And it uh, it just reminds me, I work with uh, Alpine Legal Services and his approach has been, I don't want my name on a door. I don't want my name on a building. I want to um, do the marketing. I want to do the branding. I want to make sure the lawyers are protected, but then they come work for me. Totally. They get a certain percentage of whatever they bring in or whatever work they're doing, but then they don't have to worry about uh, branding themselves, marketing, that, doing those elements. That's very similar yeah. to what Impact Resolutions has to offer um, team members who want to join. And then there's others who, you know, just kind of want to do the one-off project here and there because they, they, cause the kind of projects that we do are fun for them. It's not kind of the regular usual things to do. And then they don't have like a, they need to complete 35 hours and then not interest. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, it's deadline driven. So, you know, I'm very clear around sort of what needs to be done in a particular time. And that's really my job. Like I'm, I'm probably less and less on the subject matter technical expert. I'm, I'm more just organizing the teams and the projects and then future business development. Right. So when you were starting this, though, I imagine some of the feedback you would have gotten is, you're crazy. You can't do this. <laughs> you need to have 35-hour work weeks, and you need to well, do it this way. So and and I time? had to. Like, I, I was still continuing to work full-time and then running the business. But my approach has always been, I need – so in keeping a great team, I'm building the business for them first. So they get all the hours as long as I can still keep them and continue keep on going. So I would have full-time work elsewhere um, and still managing the company, ensuring that that those team members, because I had no funding coming in. I was like, the only funding that I, is the ones that I'm generating, that I was generating. So any other full-time employment was all going back into the company. That's a lot of work though. You're doing two. What was that? What were those initial days like? Was that? That's normal for me. Like I'm just like, you know, working and living on your own since you're you, three jobs, school full time. Like that was actually a less, less of a work week than, than usually. Because I guess you're building something that you believe in. Yeah, I think so. It, it just, it was more clean. Like I, you remove the stress of, of the toxicity at a workplace. And even if I was getting it at a workplace, I had this, it's okay, because there's a greater goal here. Like I can handle the bullying now because I don't have to be here for a long time. Right. I can say no whenever I want to. Yeah. And yeah. so are you particularly working with any area like BC or are you yeah. still international? What what kind of levels it's, are you? It's BC, mostly BC, Alberta, Northeastern BC. Um, but then again, we're, you know, really starting in Pakistan and Turkey is probably our, our major focus areas right now. And what brings yeah. that about? How do you make a decision like that? Yeah. Um, well, Pakistan actually came about organically as well. I met Arshad Jami, who the kind of sociologists and anthropologists that we are in involuntary resettlement, living with communities as a way to understand policies and practice is quite unique, like in terms of really pushing that method. Um, and Arshad reached out to me 
2015 is like, hey, you do this work too. We just we just ended up building such a great professional relationship where um, he joined Impact Resolutions when I started the company. And he's a premier sociologist working for all the major dam projects in Pakistan. And, you know, we just had that real connection. He came to me one day, he's like, Love involuntary resettlement, but what do you think about sustainable ecocultural tourism? And he was starting to work with um, sort of programs in Pakistan. Uh, it was a reconciliation programs to invite Sikhs and Buddhists back to Pakistan after they were exiled in in 1947. The current prime minister is on this huge reconciliation program, so a lot of monies were being put back into. Uh, restoring these gurdwaras and Buddhist sites where a lot of sort of the major spiritual sites happen for Sikhs and, and Buddhists. So we that's kind of where we started that that sustainable ecocultural tourism there, providing immersive experiences, helping reunify or reconcile relationships between uh, those who were exiled and help sort of rediscover areas that that they were that they had been exiled from and we did a soft tour actually in <laughs> March 2020 just as covid was going to hit it, but it was remarkable and we were able to apply it and you know we were just kind of testing out what it was going to be like and uh, we were able to find this one grandson's grandfather's house and it was great we we were just coming to Mitatwana and in a matter of 4 hours we had the whole community coming with us to find where we thought he lived and we found the place where he lived in addition to the temple that he used to pray at. I am always learning something new. Can you tell us a little bit more about the exile of these individuals? And yeah, it, it was when basically, so Britain had, um, I guess, a process of decolonization. India and Pakistan split in 1947, where Muslims uh, predominantly reigned in Pakistan. And it, it was through a natural border. I can't remember the river now. And, and then um, most others remained in India. And it was that time where many Sikhs who were overnight had to leave their homes um, as Pakistan and India became separated um, due to decolonization of, of, of Britain. Wow. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm not as well-versed in this history as I should be, um, but that's, that's kind of the working knowledge that I have. And, and, and more recently now, uh, certainly in this sort of spirit of reconciliation, um, yeah, it's really exciting to see and to work in Pakistan and, and sort of, an opportunity to see opportunities for tourism and, and the areas of the North and how diverse and how welcoming and loving the people are. And Turkey kind of came about, well, because of COVID, we had to stop our tourism there. So Turkey came about, Arshad kind of in, in a similar way was like, oh, well, you know, what about Turkey? <laughs> and so we started our kind of doing some scouting for Turkey. And now we're really focused. We've already developed some relationships with local nonprofits to provide um, charitable 
meaningful um, tourism engagement opportunities. So we hope to hit a market that wants to travel, visit areas in Turkey, but work with a nonprofit that we're working to maybe do uh, work to empower girls' education. So we're working on what that's going to look like over the next, actually in September, we're going to be doing a tour and working with that nonprofit, Peda, who's already been operating for 11 years. We're just hoping to collaborate with them. Wow. When you're growing this, what have you kind of seen or what is your perspective on uh, where maybe BC is going in terms of are we moving in the right direction? I saw that uh, Stahelis First Nation just did their reconciliation agreement. Tawasin came to their agreement uh, like 10 years ago now. So are you feeling like we're slow and steady wins the race and we're on the right track or what are you seeing? I I think... I think I need to, you know, having spent time in those communities, I think they have had to learn as they go. Um, I think now, again, going back to creating that space for communities to really explore on their own for what they feel is valuable in their communities first before it being triggered on the outside, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um but there are isolated areas that have sort of problems that are intergenerational that are really savage. The opioid crisis, for instance, is is a pandemic, and that worries the heck out of me for all communities, no matter where. It's this, you know, there's, again, that, that gap in terms of what we think a community and a society is that we need to pay special attention to because people are self-medicating. Right. People need to, you know, and impact resolutions is really blessed. We're supporting the All Nations Outreach Society, who, you know, is the first of its kind program, um, really with the Heisla Nation, with the monies they got from LNG to the first of its kind outreach program with James Harry Sr. Um, to provide unconditional ongoing love and support for those lost and drug addicted on the downtown east side for when they're ready for it. And since we started, you know, working together in the last couple of years, there's partnerships with BC Housing, First Nations Health Authority, Ministry for Social Development and Poverty Reduction, um, where they're able to help more and more people and more and more nations through lynch programs, through, um, you know, water and land-based healing programs, because, I think if we continue to focus on, you know, that healing for when people are ready, um, I think we're moving in the right direction. But he's like, they are a small army that, you know, needs to grow. And, and Impact Resolutions is really there to provide the the administrative and governance support because of all the background stuff. But I think if more and more people focus on kind of the direct human parts instead of it being this is an institutional thing that I I work for and yeah you know x y and z and it becomes quantitative and statistical then that's dangerous but if we can marry or sort of mix the two in terms of evidence-based decision making I think we're going to be okay yeah I think that it's such an interesting time because my challenge, I guess, as a native court worker was that I would send people to treatment places where I knew that there was somebody with uh, who is still recovering yeah. running the place. And then it's like, well, I want to set this person up in the best way I can. But the resource I'm sending you to is they need to imperfect. be healthy, too. Yeah. That's right. And that and that's sort of where, 
you know, looking at James and all his volunteers and the board members is just so empowering and inspiring, right? He has a, a story himself of, of addiction and recovery and then giving back. Um, I, I, I encourage you to introduce, you know, uh, that introduction for sure, because it, it's just mind-blowing, like, how effective his small team is compared to those big nonprofit organizations who claim to do the same thing. But it's really the timing of being able to coordinate multiple organizations for when that person is ready to heal that James has been able to sort of overcome by being available and visible to that person. But then quickly, you know, there's no time lag. The support is there and he drives people back home. And sometimes it's like, 16 hours away for when those people are ready to heal. That's a really interesting point you make. Um, I feel the same way. I feel um, I've worked with a lot of nonprofits. I've gotten to see uh, what they say they do in comparison to the... What they do. Yeah, and that's probably the most disheartening is that I've worked with um, places that are supposed to be shelters for women, and then the feedback you get is like, this was like, they were rude. They talked yeah. down to me. They kicked me out because I came 10 minutes late. And it's like, what? Yeah. Is, and, and I see, like, when I started as a native court worker, one mm-hmm. of my the, the values I went in with is I'm not going to fix anybody. I'm going to help people when they're kind of yeah. ready and uh, they're probably going to fall. And my the executive director of the native court mm-hmm. workers does a really good job of saying, your job isn't to get someone out of the court system. Yeah. Your goal is to make the periods in which they're not in the court system longer because then it's three months to- and it's six months great- and it's nine months yeah. and you expand right. that time. Yeah. And that's your goal if you can do that you're making a difference because then it's a year then it's two years then it's five years and you're working towards a longer term goal but i did see other Mm. staff and other people in other organizations go i helped you why are you back here like i aren't you aren't you good now and it's like no you're gonna fall down we all fall down (laughs) well that's right and we can fall down again and again and that's kind of when I was younger and kind of that insight, because I screwed up a lot and again and again, and I, you know, thank you people who continue to love me. And and that's what I love about James. It's that, yeah, those people can, it can be, there's no limit to how many times they can, you know, go back to being on the downtown East side. It's that just as your, you know, your, your person said, we just want to make those longer, you know, those times longer in between between them going back because it's when they're ready to heal and we meet them wherever they're at. And those are the kinds of organizations and the kind of work that we want to be involved in, whether it's industry, whether it's government, that they're, you know, when people hire us or people know that they've worked with impact resolutions, that there's an expectation of how things have been done, that they can feel confident that there was you know, a, you know, to go above and beyond FPEC to to really kind of really understand and support the mechanisms of which people really need to heal with, right? Like, I, I kind of think of if we're toward a really trying to our target target audiences, um, you know, drug war dismantlers, land defenders. You know, it's like those are the people we want to 
work with who are really trying to um, do something different that actually works for people versus what's going to help them. Right. Can you, um, you don't have to give like a direct example, but can you give us an example of uh, you meet with a community and you say, hey, let's let's try and work together. We'll try and get some funding. What's what's the goals that you guys are kind of setting together in terms of getting funding, then we're going to do X, Y, and Z. What are those kind yeah. of things that you're working well, on? Well, I think it's, it's, it, it, it's not a cold call. It's usually people who know us already. Like, um, for instance, uh, with the All Nations Outreach Society, I'd already been working with them for a little bit and uh, being able to put in-kind support um, from team members to then work with them to develop applications for funding that keeps them operating and then also able to pay ourselves. So that that's sort of one example. Um, you know, part of this, I hope that message is out there, contact us. Like, you know, we want to hear your stories, what's going on, because uh, we're certainly not traditional in the way that we see how things should be run. Um, and potentially we can work together once you get to know us as well. And I, I think that's where um, team members have been able to make those introductions um, through working relationships they've already had with previous careers or previous work experiences. So that's where we build it. Murray just has a reputation on its own. And <laughs> he, he's just so well-renowned in our field that people come to us because they know Murray. So that's one facet as well. But um, I also create incentives for members where, you know, they're going to get a, a commission off that that first opportunity. Interesting. So I'm uh, looking long term uh, potentially to work with my community, right. Tawatha First Nation, right. um, yeah. and we're the they're asking me to join their economic development committee, and um, they've asked if I'd be interested or open to the idea mm -hmm. of running for chief and council right. um, yeah. this coming June. Um, I'm open to the idea. Mm -hmm. I'd much rather be um, part of an economic development corporation because that's where I feel I don't really want to do the politics. Um, that's well, not that's where, where the work really shines and lives. Yeah. Like I've worked with some really great economic development arms who do and and continue to do so. Do who do some really great things for the community in terms of raising capital. And that's what I get to learn from Murray too, raising capital. And we work together on how that can be reinvested back into the community. So that's when actually we do that exact kind of work with One Nation in the North right now, uh, raising that fund through the, the economic development arm and then creating an organizational framework to make sure the needs of the community are met by talking to the right people, not only on staff, but with those committees that make up community members. Right. So yeah. if I were to call and say, hey, we're ready to get started yeah, on economic development, call, what would that conversation <laughs> sort of look like? Right. Oh, with, with impact resolution. Yeah. So I'm, I'm ready to, we're ready yeah. to get the ball rolling, but we want to do things ethically right. and make sure we're lifting up and uh, building capacity within our community. I think that that's where um, perhaps if I hadn't have done this paper, mm. I would have thought no need for community consultation. I'll just hit the ground running. We'll get some business yeah, in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what would that conversation sort of look like? I would probably ask if, you know, sort of what community plans have been done recently, what are about to be updated? Has there been a needs assessment? That could no. have been triggered by, um, you know, sort of industry wanting to operate in that area. So that would be sort of some bite-sized pieces around a needs assessment. What's your communications plan? How, how do you know what you know is what you know, right? Like whether... Are you in treaty? Are you not in treaty? Are you doing a relationship agreement? So it's really kind of understanding potentially what community 
pieces have already been explored or discovered or are wanting to and then working backwards well let's do a needs assessment and then then that kind of ding ding okay we know what funding to apply for if that's and then how it might build into sort of later phases of funding that includes a communication plan or maybe that's done simultaneously but really it's a conversation that starts and trying to understand for myself what how much practice have you had working as a community is kind of the question I have in my mind whether that's through treaty or community plans or etc. That's incredible because, yeah, that's what we're – my hope is to yeah. start working on that. And I know that um, it's going to cause a lot of disagreement in the outset. There's going to totally. be – we're going to be airing dirty laundry in those yeah. early phases of, yeah. oh, I didn't like how this was done 15 years ago. And that's ago. okay. You know, you kind of got to get all that out. Like exactly. that's really important because it's like a pressure. It's pressure lid and then it booms. So, like, again, it's sort of that needs assessment. It's kind of understanding all the things that need to be addressed. And the communication plan kind of ensures the governance around ensuring people don't get to that point. Yeah. And then you get kind of part of that out of the way because what happens, I think, is if you avoid that and you go, oh, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just not do that because yeah. why, why would we air our dirty laundry? Yeah. Is that yeah. leaks into business agreements and people start Everything. having elections, all of that. And, you know, it's, it, you could have a hybrid system, a hereditary and an elected system. We, we don't, I, I wouldn't know, right? But it's sort of maybe that's something that, you know, having something that the community can focus on that brings love back into the community and practicing on how to communicate with each other is really my goal. And we can find that with available funding out there under the guise of, you know, economic development. But really, it should serve multiple purposes in my mind. Yeah, I yeah. don't disagree. I think that that's something that when you're kind of in a cycle of poverty or you're yeah. used to the same old, same old. It's easy. Yeah, I yeah. see it with, because I'm not on chief and council, yeah. thank goodness, right yeah. now, because I see those shots being taken of like, oh, you're getting rich off of this. Yeah. And it's like, chief and council make about yeah. $1,000 yeah. a month. Like, yeah. you're not getting rich yeah. off of doing this job. That's right. But if those, then that goes down to a lack of communication. Yeah. right or awareness and and that's kind of the work that I, I i'd like to think i'm doing with the indigenous center for cumulative effects is again positioning communities to have that understanding before it's triggered by outsiders because once it's triggered that is only going to be amplified you you know all these like why are you talking to that person and that creates such a, an environment of unsafety you know and that's the scary space that happened in the north to be quite to be quite frank, and where it's gotten sort of out of control. People don't feel safe there anymore. That's awful. It is awful. And I don't think it needed to go there. I think there was another way to do that. And there was a, a lot of missed opportunities. Yeah, and I think that when you have people like yourself who are willing to um, – I also interviewed Anuk Crawford, and one of the things she commented on, because mm. she's a family lawyer, oh, and so she yeah. gets she gets those – Oh, she gets it all. Yeah, yeah, and she gets to see that. And so yeah. trying to have um, a calm person in the room to break things down and, and like, yeah. okay, like we hear what you're yeah. saying, and like there is this space yeah. to talk, yeah. but we need to make sure we're still being constructive yeah. Yeah. and working towards yeah. some sort of goal. Like, I feel Being like that sort of, yeah, the, it, it's mediator, mediator might be the right term, but it's emotional, a mediator who is neutral and trusted on all sides. Yeah. That That's kind of, you know, the key point. And, you know, the work that we do is sort of, if 
there might be people already existing in the community who just needs a bit of training and confidence to know that they continue that work. Like our, our position is we want to work ourselves out of a job. Yeah. We don't want to be here forever. <laughs> this is not, you know, it's really just to kind of, again, going back to what Helen said, share what we know and provide them the support until they're ready to take that on their own. That's, it's just funny that you say that because that's how I feel about taking on a role because I do feel mostly disconnected from my community that I don't have any opinions on what correct development needs to be. So whatever the community chooses, I don't have a a, a team I'm on where it's like, I want it to look like X. And so I feel like I can be helpful all the way up until somebody else is ready to lead the way on what they truly believe their community needs to look like because I don't live there. I'm not going to, if we put in a pipeline or if we start Mm -hmm. logging more, or if we put up a a big gas station, I'm not going to be there using that service anyway. So whatever all of you want is what I want for you so that you can fill the jobs that interest you. And And that's where the needs assessment comes in to depoliticize sort of action plans or next steps for people, for everybody, right? It's sort of, and, but to the work to get there and to the outcomes of what that need, those needs are, again, is practicing on how to collaborate. And with those who live on reserve and off reserve. Yeah. Right? What what would advice would you give? Because it sounds like a tool that everybody could use more of. Yeah, an ability yeah. to relate to, oh, I hear your side, I hear this side, and recognizing and, and having those conversations. It's a it's a built skill that I feel like we're starting to see the value in, but it's still in those very nascent it phase is, stages. It, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, we just came off a project where uh, we're supporting Muslim youth serving organization actually provide, you know, (laughs) appropriate and and sort of culturally relevant support. And the first question kind of have to ask yourself, have you included youth in the decision making? Have you included youth in in sort of the idea of the programming? And and that's, you know, it's it seems common sense, but it's really it's an important question to ask. Have you included community members? Have you included who have you included as community members? And how, you know, how were these consultations run? Like it's good to have a, a facilitator, a neutral facilitator, because it doesn't have to be long and drawn out. For me, it's four sessions. You should have enough information. The first two, just everyone being able to air out their, you know, sort of identify the issues and vulnerabilities, pivoting in the third one to, you know, co-collaborating on solutions. That's where the real magic happens, right? And and that's it. It's like a, it's really um, a well-being-based, strength-based, trauma-informed, community-centered approach, really. That, that's kind of, you know, how we see engagement, whether it's with industry or community programs or or sort of nonprofits. It kind of that's kind of the formula in my mind. I love that last yeah. part because that's where people start to see themselves as the solution. Yeah. And I think that that's what <laughs> maybe we're it felt like that's what was what's been missing from conversations when mm. I was a court worker was that there like and of course I believe that there's been atrocities against indigenous people, yeah. but there's this instinct to go this isn't my fault because of Indian residential schools. And I think that that limits our ability to see ourselves as the potential solutions to the challenges that we're facing. And I think that that's, I feel like that's inspirational. Yeah. And I feel like it just needs to be said more. It's the, again, the pain, turning that pain into purpose. And some people just have never been asked. 
Like, it's disgusting. Like, when I go into a place, it's like, did you even talk to them? It's like, what? You've been texting them. That's how you think a relationship. No. Like, <laughs> and and that's it. Like, people just sort of don't even know something about themselves until they're asked to participate. And that's it. You can only just give the opportunity. You can't force people into it. But once you create that safe space, they're going to tell us more people. They're going to tell more people. And then it's, again, practice, yeah. right? And then they integrate it into themselves. Yeah. And then they're excited they're about the solution. Yes. They're, you're creating champions. And that's kind of, you know, the involuntary resettlement work. For me, that's sort of um, this idea or the sort of the fault of previous assessments is those who were involuntarily resettled weren't sort of taking uh, ownership of those plans. Well, of course they're not. They were not anywhere near the part, you know, they were ma- not able to make any decisions about it. They're not inspired. It's someone else's plan that was imposed upon them. Of course they're not. So that's kind of where I got that training and that insight to like, it's not even like, I think other people do. I, d- I think the confidence that it's the right sort of start. It's the right place to start. Yeah, that it's the cornerstone of how to move forward yeah. is by building up the community so that they can, in the future, come to Weather any storms. Yeah. They can weather anything. That's I really it. believe that. I really believe that. I know it. That's where, you know, sustainable ecocultural tourism for me, whether it's here in Canada or, or elsewhere, whatever the outcome, it might be tourism, but at least we're leaving a legacy. They have clean water, you know, wastewater treatment, you know, affor- you know housing. You know, it, it's just like, that's the legacy I want to leave. Sorry, could you tell people what that is? It's a very long word, sustainable. Eco-cultural tourism. Yeah. So it's sort of like that idea, like that's kind of the the guiding principles, right? And m- that might be the outcome that our journey gets us to, but it's an option only after we're going to a community, meeting them where they're at. So just like anything else, assessing what they want and then building the infrastructure usually it starts with community infrastructure wastewater treatment all that sort of good water like those things that you would expect food um that building them up where and we're working with community members and community leaders to you know raise the funds to get them there but ecotourism might be the outcome but it doesn't have to be you know but our entry point for conversation is tourism that is very interesting. Can you explain why tourism is one of the cornerstones? Because I agree with you. I just think it would be valuable to, to kind of yeah. sift that out. Um, you know, for me, it, it sort of goes back to the sustainability. You know, people want to visit and share and, and build. I don't know. It For me, it's just sort of being able to invite visitors in an area that you're really proud of gives you such a sense of, I don't know, just pride. Like it's, it's being, it's nice, like cleaning my apartment and having people over. I have a huge sense of pride in that. Like, it's like, yeah, I cleaned it. (laughs) It's like, you know, I'm proud of you. You want to share it. And I think tourism for me kind of generates a potential and, and really kind of builds that solidarity because we hear stuff on the, and again, it's the news. Like I I always want to be there and go there and, and listen for myself. And I think creating tourism opportunities for me kind of generates generates the right sort of momentum you know like i've visited areas that you see on the news that are war-torn and i have such a different perception of those areas it's yeah i think that's where tourism can we can really take advantage of i guess as an excuse to collaborate 
Can I just ask your thoughts on the news from your perspective? Because you've gotten to, we saw a wet swing on the news, you got to work with them. We see perhaps Pakistan or uh, countries near there um, in dire states of affair. And we develop our perceptions often based on our understanding of what's going on uh, on our news cycle. And if there's anything that hopefully we're starting to develop is to ask more, better, higher quality questions and to really reflect on what our like uh, I had Geetanjali Gill mm. on. Um, yeah, that's right. And she's very interested in uh, working with. I think she's a part of a project right now, trying to make sure that mm. education is accessible to women in other countries. And she's a practitioner as well. And uh, one of her comments was like, "There's so many amazing things going on in other countries, but it never makes our news." And it was just that's like, it. "That's so crazy it that is. that's a problem that we haven't looked into solving." Yeah. And I was advocating for her, and I'm probably mm. going to advocate for you to consider doing like a. a an update on what's going on around the world that's good new or yeah. information that we should be championing and be proud of and give us a different perspective on these countries because if you, you asked me if you asked me to yeah. go to Pakistan I'd be yeah. like I don't <laughs> is it safe and like that's a a, a naive question from somebody it's who doesn't It's a fair know. question, right? And you know, I I think of Pakistan and Afghanistan and when I was there just last in in 2020 um, and you see, you know, using the pandemic as an example and you didn't hear about this in the news. The first thing the prime minister did was was um, develop areas for the poor and homeless to be safe and and taken care of in this pandemic. That was the first thing that he did. Like out of out of anything, he shut the country down. He made you know he just made it um, you know gave the structure the people needed in in what potentially could have been a panic situation. Um, you know, we were traveling on our way up to northern Pakistan on the Chinese-Pakistan border. We had to come back early, and that's when I had this opportunity to, to visit Peshawar um, on the Pakistan-Afghanistan border and go into Afghanistan. And these are areas, you know, 10, 15 years ago that were constantly being bombed that you would see in the news. And such a different perspective for me. People would look at me, obviously I'm not from there, and they would smile. They're, they felt like there was this hope that, you know, they were able to finally move back into their communities. Like um, there was peace in that region again. Um, you know, so I certainly, for me, it just sort of reinforced again how important it is to visit and kind of spread that awareness that it might be different from what you're used to, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. Did you have any reaction to what happened with uh, the I troops pulling out? I did. Out? You know, the first thing was phone my colleagues. How's it going? And and I and I know I don't want to talk too much because I know yeah. I have colleagues who had a very, you know, who were there at that time and had some horrible things happen to them. So I know it's nothing is so black and, black white. and white. I get that. But their perception was so different. Like there was a, a sense of celebration for them, you know, and and sort of hope at sort of that U.S. withdrawal at the same time that was happening. So I was, I was hearing many different things, um, and my experiences are, are kind of on based on my own. But I've just been given so many reasons to know how important it is to be there, to really understand it, or have 
you know, how important it is to visit those regions before having an opinion. That's what I think is the most interesting, right, is people have all types of opinions on good withdrawal, bad withdrawal, what should have been done yeah. better, and they yeah. never went. Yeah, or they base their whole careers on an idea that they've actually never been there. Yeah. That's it just kind of, wow. <laughs> I, I, again, I think it. I think if we can kind of bring it back to the basics, I think we, I think there's some hope. Yeah, I definitely feel that way in regards to indigenous issues. I just think it's discouraging when, uh, like from my perspective, your leader perhaps goes to Tofino and goes and relies. Like that doesn't inspire confidence. No, it doesn't. And and that's the thing is sort of well, what is leadership? Is it just one person? Like, are is that one person? Is that reasonable to expect they should shoulder and burden all of that responsibility? You know, when there's so many different kinds of governance and leadership styles, right? Or, yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah. And I think that's a community by community decision. And, yeah, that yeah. recognition that there is a whole minister response. And, yeah. Like, we didn't focus on what they're doing. And that's where I think it gets easy to pick sides or to politicize issues and pick yeah. one side or the other. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where there's value in, like, trying to understand deeper, trying to hear people out. Spend that time. because And, and it, it might feel like a lot of work, if you know, but, you know, just like for anything, you know, you have the right tools, the right people in place, you know, do that early work early, uh, meaningfully will just save you, you know, such a, it, it'll just set you up better for things that are going, and, and just make things more, um, yeah, people more feel like they have more ownership of, of the process. Yeah. Can you tell us, uh, we have gone through a lot of your career, but we were talking about your nonprofit earlier. Right. Can you tell yeah. us where it's at today? You know, I wish it, it's kind of blended in with impact resolutions work. So I haven't actually utilized the nonprofit versus sort of next plans to, to work with the communities. You know, I still communicate with the communities that I worked with back back in those days um they they had a, a horrible fire um you know and, and i'm i don't have to raise the money i can usually take the money more on a personal level i don't have to um, have big fundraisers which i would love to do sort of going down but I, I continue to sort of keep in touch and would like and actually have one member and she was nine or six at the time when I was working there. She's now a young adult. She wants to be a civil engineer. And she's actually, in you know, one of our members to, to gain work experience on our team. So um, really remarkable. We, we're, we're starting a, a bit of a, I guess, sort of the work that we're involved in that's related to the nonprofit, you know, 10 years after the dam has essentially abandoned any social responsibility. What is life really like? Because we don't often hear the stories of the people when they're not involved anymore. And I think it's a critical moment that they probably need to get off their chest. So we're starting that conversation and that work. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Like it's, we, we make these decisions around resettlement action plans and da, 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 but how does it actually operate? Like, so, you know, 20 years after construction, I, 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 you know, I, I fail to see the benefits, even though there is such a, you know, I, yeah, I fail to see the benefits for those early decisions that were made back then. I, I see hope in the future, but hopefully this work can help inform sort of future resettlement action plans. 
Yeah, I think that that's the tough part, right, is that it's on our news cycle or it's in our minds at the front end. And then looking back on, uh, like, again, like when you think of the politicization of the the U.S.'s healthcare system, and then you see now it's not even a topic, but it was the primary talking point for almost a year of just talking only about, well, I would do healthcare this way or that way. And I disagree with this person's approach on that. And then it's like, well, none of you are doing anything. Like, what are we doing? Like, you know, professional talk. Yeah. You know, professional um, self-promoters. That's the expertise we've created in our society now. Who And people make a lot of money doing that. And, and it's sort of for me, I just, I think if they use those skills that had some reciprocity going back into, you know, the communities they supposedly serve. Wow, what magic that would happen, right? So, yeah, I, I hear you. It's sort of news cycles and... What, what seems sort of important should always be important, especially for those people who don't have access to the media like you and me. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the person who connected us is actually Mark Lalonde. That's right. Yeah. So if we don't uh, have a chance to talk about him, uh, I'll be disappointed. I, I, I was going to say another, you know, a dear friend and, and another just – Mark is just – not only just a great friend, but he's super energizing. I feel really safe with him to, you know, kind of have these kinds of discussions about the what ifs. And I would say a mentor too. You know. How did you meet uh, Mark? Mark was actually, for listeners who don't know, he was actually a past podcast guest. That's right. Yeah. Um, he We met actually with a colleague of his, um, Royston. And Royston and I worked in the field together. He's corporate security for Coastal GasLink at the time. So this is back in 2014, 2015. And, and basically Royston's role is to ensure um, the safety of the environmental field teams. And there were 150 plus 80 Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, elders, and youth with us all collecting environmental information at once. So Royston and I were leading those programs. And I met Mark through Royston at an event that their company was hosting. We just became fast friends after that. And always made an effort to uh, to connect when we're, we're in town at the same time. Actually, Mark was the first to introduce me to Abbotsford um, a, a few years ago. It was sad because I moved to Abbotsford and then he moved to Sunrillet. So, <laughs> but that's how I discovered or started to explore the Fraser Valley. Amazing, because, yeah, um, I took his class. And okay, I did some teaching. I, t- I taught it at a few sort of special courses with him, of course. Yeah, yes. and so he was kind of the first to be like, we don't have the answers, and these are global problems. Mm. And I was like, hey, I'm here for you to tell me what the solutions <laughs> to these problems are. And that's what – that's and uh, he gave us an assignment, and he's like – uh, write about a problem mm. and all the different aspects of that problem. And so I think I did um, uh, the main one was like water mm. and uh, like rising water. And it's like it's a complex problem. It's yeah. impacting different communities completely differently, some for the better, some for the worse. Um, who takes responsibility? Who's yeah. accountable yeah. for when water is rising? And how do we hold them accountable? If we like, And it's mm. so complicated, but that was mm. his kind of approach is just like find a problem and talk yeah. about all the problems yeah. with that problem. Well, and and it's so overwhelming and that's where I, you know, when we're talking right now, it's like, where do you start? If we haven't started with what I think is A and B or C, which is people and the people who might be sort of immediately impacted, then we, we've we gone too far. Yeah. 
and I, and that's sort of where I feel I have something special to contribute to um, the world or um, to the people I work with is is that intimate understanding based on our whole selves. That's amazing. Yeah. For somebody who's interested in working with you, they've listened to this and they've they've gotten this far. What would you say to them in terms of your perhaps uh, an elevator pitch or your idea of what impact uh, resolutions is is bringing about? Yeah, thank you. I I, I think it. You know, honestly. Um, as a team, we're building a safe space for people to explore the what ifs, the possibilities and the potential of what that mutual sort of reciprocal relationship between industry and community and um, everything can can offer by having the right information. So I encourage you, reach out. Um, love to hear more about you. And, and many people have. Uh, a lot of people have found my profile online and introduce themselves and it always like oh because that's how I used to do things when I was younger just pick up the phone and ask me a question like that's how I certainly started off my in my career that was actually my next question was going to be um like you set such a strong example in being willing to persevere and willing to take risks like for many starting a business is a very intimidating process for many starting a nonprofit organization <laughs> is a very intimidating process traveling the world intimidating process um leaving when you did yeah. um brave yeah. uh decision and so i think that you set such a strong example in willing to say i'm going to move forward and i'm going to put a smile on my face and, and persevere. And I think that so many people get stuck and uh, there's like a good quote of like, mm. so many people live quiet lives of course of lives of quiet desperation, mm. of wishing they had, of saying, I could have done that, maybe. That's suffering. Yeah. You know, that, that suffering and, you know, goes back to, you know, having the space to daydream and explore those what ifs and and I feel so excited through impact resolutions that I get to with such a a brilliant you know passionate enthusiastic group of people who believe that too and it's not to say we're disregarding the greater good for our own personal needs those can be met too that's why I think I started impact resolutions as a, a for profit because I think when I was younger it's sort of you know you forget about that and Thank goodness, Murray, who reminds me we need to make profit too. You know, and that's kind of that's the thing I'm learning. But yeah, it's you know, I don't think we need to suffer. I think there are ways that and questions that we can ask ourselves to at least start with the right step. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think profit is a tough when you're when you're a genuine person. It feels like profit is uh, it's so wrong, exactly. And so it's something that I've thought about too because it's like, well, I want to work hard, set a good example, but I want to make sure that I'm passing, like my community yeah. doesn't have wealth to pass on. Yeah. And so yeah. if we're not looking at having enough wealth that we can donate to good causes where we can say, like I, I, mm. um, one of my role models, and I think he's made a few mistakes more recently, but it's Naval Ravikant. If you've ever heard of no, him, he's no. an investor. He helped start Facebook. Okay, yeah. And one of the comments he made mm. was like, go get the money. Mm. Like you can't mm -hmm. like, 
like mm-hmm. the people who are who have bad ideologies, who are selfish, yeah. who are they who, get the money, and then they go influence things yeah. by buying a building and saying yeah. we're going to put this this, this right. business yeah. in there, and they yeah. go make more money, and they yeah. continue to grow that. And so, yeah. if you're saying I'm idealistic and I'm not going to participate in that system, then they're going to go have their influence, and that's what I always try and mm-hmm. consider when I'm talking about yeah. indigenous communities. Yeah. Is either a corporation's going to come in and tell us what they're they're going to do, or we're going to say, actually, we're already investing in doing X, Y, and Z, exactly. so we don't need we don't need you, yeah, right, and and that kind of goes, yeah, I I couldn't agree more, and that's the thing I had to kind of contend with in my university days, you know, working for you know World Bank projects, you know those, you know, in that context, I was constantly being you're selling out. And I and I had to really contend. No, this is important. I'd rather be there, you know, and knowing that I care to do the right thing than some other person who might not care as much. And I that's one way I rationalize it in business. I, I need to remind myself of that too. And and that's sort of where you know, in building the company, ensuring that the team is taken care of first. I finally in a position where I can take care of myself now. And I know that that for me is sort of like, that's okay. That's success moving in the right direction, you know, and then hopefully I'll get to that time where I can, you know, step away and someone can walk into my shoes to take it over. I'm constantly thinking of that. So I can take this profit and invest it somewhere, you know, some, because that, that's important to me. That's that, that makes me happy. Yeah, I yeah. I feel the same way about the podcast. I yeah. so when yeah. I started this, I was like, I'm not going to do this role forever. I might continue to have conversations, but this has brought me mm. such benefit in terms of building relationships yeah. with people, networking, learning more about people's stories. That th- it would be perhaps selfish of me to just think, oh, when I'm when I'm done, this disappears and this platform's That's gone. That's right. It's sort of a legacy that you can pass on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's th- a different way of thinking that I think we're not naturally sort of inclined to think that way so I think that that those small pivots will really make a difference I couldn't agree more yeah. and I think that it's inspirational to think I'm building something to pass on rather than this is just about me and my success totally and- oh, I'm excited for you this is great and just some of your great announcements recently with Chilliwack Tourism wow yeah yeah I am very excited about that opportunity can you tell people how they can connect with you um, sure. online your website your yeah. social media pages thank you I'm, I'm on LinkedIn um, I'm Papita Alina McKee. I'm also, I can be reached at www.impactresolutions.ca. Amazing. And I think you're also on Twitter, if I'm not mistaken. Not actively. No. <laughs> I would say LinkedIn is probably the space we're more active. Facebook is where a lot of our um, our friends, our colleagues, our clients sort of live and operate. So uh, Facebook is another page that we have. We have an Instagram page, but I think LinkedIn and, and Facebook is probably the most active. Amazing. Pepita, I am so grateful to have had the opportunity to to hear about the journey that you've been on. I think that uh, you should have your own movie based on like the <laughs> the amount of struggle you faced early Thank on you, and your willingness to push forward and not listen to the naysayers, not listen to how other people define you. I think that it's easy for all of us to fall into how other people perceive mm. us and for your willingness to leave that circumstance. We don't we don't know what could have happened. Like 
Like you, yeah. if you hadn't have chosen to do that, you might not have been here today to share such an inspirational story. And your willingness to see both sides, I think, is another area where there's so much to learn from that because it's so easy to judge someone based on a clickbait headline or on an assumption yeah. rather than going, well, this perhaps this corporation is working to try and make money and and take care of their shareholders and this community is working to try and take care of their community and they both have perspectives mm. and i think that that balance is so important because i believe in uh like the rights of people to protest but i yeah, want it to be informed too. and i want yeah. it to be understood that there's so much nuance to these conversations and i think yeah. that we should enjoy that rather than flee from it and i think that that's the example that you set by saying this is a long process and we're going to go through it together but at the end everybody's going to flourish and I think that that's that's what I want people to Mm -hmm. understand about indigenous communities is if we don't develop you miss out on our culture our language our food like our stories our missed opportunity not to exactly no thank you Aaron for giving me this platform I'm really honored to be able to share my story in such a safe um, environment and you made it really easy to share <laughs> i i, I want to say yes thank you for for this opportunity Aaron, so much yes i heard that you had perhaps a a more difficult experience previously and i hope that this was more positive and more impactful so it, I... it was yeah thank you I, I i again i i feel like all the work that you did in advance and and just the environment that you've created here thank you well it's such an honor to be able to sit down with people like yourself and and hear such an important story and I'm always learning more like I had no idea what was going on in Pakistan and so I take those stories with me and talk about them in the future because I enjoy understanding and learning from your experiences and I think that that's something we don't do perhaps enough is that we go well Mm. like maybe there's something to learn from this person's years of life experience. That's right well I you know I don't want the conversation to stop here Aaron always feel welcome to reach out as a sounding board and brainstorm anytime Time. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Papita. Thank you, Aaron.